This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. Hi. Hi, wherever you are in the world. We are live. 137? Have we been doing this this long? This has been unbroken. Uh, incredible. Mm-hmm. And I thank you. I thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Professor Hunter. Good everything. Yes. Good everything, because we are definitely global. 137 and counting, and it's been a real blessing every every convening, and we'll continue to grow. Now, this weekend is homecoming, so some of y'all are uh, tailgating somewhere and dancing uh, in your <laughs> respective Q uh, Alpha Kappa. <laughs> y'all stomping and, and, and doing all of the things that uh, people do oh, on the yard. Urgent care getting ready to have a little bit of a spike because it's somebody's granddaddy getting ready to show off. I want you Omegas and Kappas especially. I'm not going to start set tripping as a member of Alpha Phi Alpha, but somehow those Qs and Nukes yeah, you just take it easy. You're about 50 pounds or more heavier than you were when you were undergrad. So when you stomp your foot this time on the yard, I want your granddaughter over there in shock as they take you to the emergency room. Everybody calm down. <laughs> this is a public service announcement. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. And it's a beautiful thing, though, Prof, because it, uh, you know, uh, Howard's homecoming is this weekend, but so is Johnson C. Smith and Shaw and Allen. Jackson State, yes. In fact, uh, when Michael Strahan was down there, I think they did Good Morning America from Jackson State. Yeah, I think Friday they did a broadcast. But, you know, these these media outlets have discovered something we've known all along. Homecoming at HBCUs is only barely about the people that went to the schools, especially oh. in the South. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I've been to one or two, and I definitely didn't go to an HBCU. No question. You know, these are our schools. These I mean that, that, that our schools. This is a governance homecoming. It ain't got nothing to do with whether you enrolled. <laughs> That's facts. You know, I mean, last weekend I was looking. It was Albany State or was it Kentucky State? It was South Carolina State. Them Negroes. Now, see, tailgating in this deep South, you're gonna be eating all types of meat. <laughs> you understand? Them Negroes in Texas and South Carolina and Georgia. See, Morehouse Spelman, I think Clark's homecoming was last weekend, but of course, they all coming back. They down there now at Spelman and Morehouse, or Spellhouse, as they would say. That's That's got a little bit of a different vibe, but it is Atlanta. But when you go to Fort Valley or you go to Tuskegee, it's going to be a different thing. So yeah, they're in town. So happy homecoming to all the HBCUs, which is why, you know, I ain't repping no one HBCU. I got my old school AACA, African American College Alliance. This from our generation, right? Definitely. Yeah. I, I didn't get that one. Damn. Yeah. Oh, right. The brother who does it is up there in, in, in the New York, New Jersey area. He he, really? high, he brought his son down. I think I told you, I still he brought his son down for a college tour maybe about seven or eight years ago. His son graduated by now. And he, the son had this on. And so they asked me as often, sometimes serendipitously, I'm coming out of class. Oh, that's the car. Will y'all walk us around? Sure, sure. And I saw, I spotted the, the, the kid and I said, hey, yo, man, you, young boy, what you know about that right there? That's my generation. When I was your age, he said, that's my dad's company. I said, what? And his pops was there like, yeah, this is my... I said, wait, hold on, man. You are the author of all those hoodies, Martin, Living Single, all with the Frankenstein cuts. And he said, yeah, that's me. I said, oh, come on, man. He said, hold up. And so I'm giving the tour. By the time it was over, I went back to my afternoon class. He had come in with his son, and they had this joint right here for me. 
And I said, what? So if y'all go to AACA, are all the ones we used to wear? They're back. They're all listed. See, I know you got to talk to us. There's somebody yeah, else. I, definitely, you know, look, I, I told you I had to go get a pen because I'm like. I'm gonna, I'll send you all. I, I got his information of it. But yeah, it was just such a, because that, it seemed, we know nostalgia is something, but it seemed so pure back then, didn't it? Yeah. No, it, and it really was. There was this, this yeah. moment in time that a moment. We're going to be okay. And yeah. then it all went to to pot um and i just can't imagine getting an impromptu uh campus tour from dr carr just because he oh, no. they, they used to do that all the time not so much now but that's okay because uh we are building something now that is going that is disrupting and upending it i won't say di disrupting is the wrong word that is restoring that is restoring as we were saying this one is the new normal but we got the renewed normal now we're coming back to where we were every once in a while we poke through and then everything works real hard to stop it. And then we poke through again. One of these times we're going to break through. That's all. We're close. Yeah. We're close. yeah. I feel, I, well, if you notice, you know, last week and before you like turn down the volume and yes. you know, that uh, the volume is really loud in so many different areas with so many different things at the same time, all of these distractions, which tells you we are on the right path. I always say when there's like chaos and drama, in your life, even sometimes you caused it, but sometimes it's also you might, you know, be upsetting the other realm of evil and they are mad. So you just stay the course and break. Once you break through, there's nothing that can stop you. No, nothing. So, yeah, that's right. You knock on some press board over here because mm -hmm. I ain't got the hardcore wood <laughs> right next to me. Oh, a lot <sighs> going on this week. I know you've been busy, busy, everything. But like you said, it's it's prelude. Something's coming. Something's Something. Coming. The birth pains, they call it, right? Mm -hmm. Be be aware. So yeah. let's give birth to some things, Dr. Carr. What are we talking about today? We tell us what actually this is kind of this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the <laughs> birth birth. I mean, the breakthrough. I mean, you know, um, like we said last week, we said we'll, we'll we'll finish up on some of the main things we want to talk about in terms of the woman king. Um, but of course, since we've seen each other. Uh, something happened that gives us another point of entry and we're tied to it actually literally with the woman king and in the larger context uh really in so many ways folks who are not in nubia or a narrative not yet in nubia you know understand that increasingly which if we step back and think about it really was and is the plan our Saturdays are being driven by through the week what's going on in nubia particularly on monday nights at least in terms of this space with office hours which now half of that is going to be the course that we'll uh, launch a week from this coming Monday. This Monday, we'll talk more about the curriculum, uh -huh. but it's really everything is unfolding in divine order because it really can't be rushed. But in the conversation we had two Mondays ago about the woman king that we were going to do more with last Saturday, I figured we would just put some of that in today and follow some of the victims of that war of those wars in Dahomey mm. ended up in Haiti because the things that went down in Haiti today as the United States prepares to invade that country um you know they had a vote in the middle of the week they tried to press something through the UN it was the anniversary of the death of Jean-Jacques Dessalines ironically uh Edwige Nandekai was writing in the New Yorker about that this week everything you know just really pulls and pulls us into the thing we have to face which is ultimately human beings are going to have to deal with these problems and as african people we've got a particular responsibility to ourselves and to the species 
And so our, everything we're going to we're going to get into some of that today. I but just want to um, <laughs> say also, you know, the pacing and the rhythm uh, to not jump off of the news and to not jump off of the controversy and to not, you know, jump in and weigh in on things, not to have to weigh in on things because everybody's talking about it. That's right. We have we have the luxury to sit and digest our food and allow ourselves to be nourished. That's right. And not rush and give ourselves indigestion spiritually, which I feel like this space has allowed for us to have this constant drumbeat of sanity, That's right. clean water, perspective, and even talking about the Woman King several weeks after it was the number one movie in the in the country. No question. Uh is is perfect. So it is perfect. It is perfect. And and there's no need for us to go into a great historical dissection. I mean, that's what our class and that's what we are for. And this is in a minute, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the class more in detail um, because it's a class because we use that convening moment. But what we're really doing is returning to the way that our learning collective work has to be done. So there, there's a lot of resources out there and I've mentioned several um, on the so-called female warriors, the so-called Amazons, both of these social structure generated concepts, which really don't fit at all in terms of what African people in that region would have been creating to de describe themselves. But certainly the language we have today is a lot of literature and stuff out there. And this space does a lot of that work. I mean, here we are again. You know, we've passed the two and a half year mark, like a metronome, Saturday after Saturday. And uh, what we've done, if if for some reason we had to stop right now and not do another convening, we could go back and unpack. And there isn't a region of the world, really, that we haven't either evoked or delayered a little bit, even as we as we've only scratched the surface in any of those ways. But this only works collectively. And so the course is a collective course. So I want to talk about that. And I also want to just before we, um, as a result of our convening, all of us participate. And I'm looking at the chat here. Good everything. All folks are wishing each other happy birthday. Okay, very good. Folks are asking if they watch. Somebody asked us about the... Uh, the Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, the documentary that debuted on the NBC platform, Peacock. Have, yeah. you, have you had a chance to glance at it? Uh, no, I had Soledad O'Brien on this week, so um, I interviewed what, what her. y'all had? Would you give us a little? I, I said, why, you know, why now? Um, and she, you know, talked about the women that brought the treatment and she produced it and you know and it talks you know it talks about all of the things we've talked about here in terms of you know rosa parks and not being this unwitting you know just got tired that day all of the narratives that have been and that you know and we i got her to center you know that makes white folk comfortable to think that just this woman just couldn't take it anymore but there was uh she's always been rebellious this is she she purposefully went and set to do this and she wasn't the only one it was a massive campaign to you know fight this this injustice and 
I'm going to check it out. Definitely. Uh, I didn't get a chance this week because I'm doing a lot of. Of course. Of course. But, but I'm definitely it's on my list. Like I just watched Sydney um, a couple of weeks ago on Apple. Well, I haven't seen it at Apple. Joint. How is that? Yeah. I mean, it's you know, remember Oprah interview like Maya and Maya yeah. Angelou and oh. Cicely Tyson. And so, so a lot, brother, so, yeah. yeah. So she was able to reclaim a lot of that of uh, of that, but it was it was nice. I thought it was great. It was a well done story of of a man, and and it was some insight. Like I didn't know all of that about his first wife and those first set of children, and how she was brilliant and uh, literally uh, pushed him to greatness, which reminds me of like so many others but um you know and that was interesting his love affair with uh uh harry belafonte their their, yeah, their yeah. interesting you know relationship and you know i mean it, it touched on a lot of things that i didn't know and that's what you watch you know like oh i didn't know that let me go down this rabbit hole so mm -hmm. i'm looking forward to seeing the same thing and i'm gonna spend money um buy tickets to till even though i don't think i'm gonna go see it I just, hmm? you said that i mean yeah yeah so i'm you know i just I just feel like, you know, we're going to support some things. And even if it's not, you know, perfectly accurate, like we talked about with the woman king, it opens the doors. So every now and then there's going to be a Misha Green that comes through. They're going to slam the door on her because they're like, oops, how she get in? We need a lot of those oops, how she get in or how he got, how did he get in? Because at some point they won't be able to shut the door. So no we'll see what happens. No question. And and, and like you said, the, everything is a text. The world is full of information. For example, this, but what ends up happening is the things that we see presented. And uh, this week in my Black Aesthetics class, uh, our students, uh, I've got them at Howard reading a book by uh, Baba Clyde Taylor, Dr. Clyde Taylor, which I really one of one of my favorite books. Um, it's called The Mask of Art. Uh, Clyde Taylor, who you know HBCU grad, taught at HBCU for a while, retired from New York University. Uh, brilliant brother, uh, a filmmaker, film critic, really more than anything else, and cultural critic. He talks about what he calls the politics of representation, or as I like to have the students walk through it, the politics of representation. In fact, um, this is the book, The Mask of Art, Breaking the Aesthetic Contract in Film and Literature. Very interesting. In fact, it was the cover of this book that made me buy it. <laughs> I was in Chicago for a Martin Luther King Day conversation. It's probably about 10 years ago, maybe. And uh, no, longer than that. Has to be longer than that. Because Clyde Taylor, we got him to come to Howard. Uh, the students got him to come, and we had a real conversation. It was long, maybe about 15 years ago. And uh, is Henry Williamson, I want to say? Was the minister at large CME church in Chicago, Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. He ended up being a bishop. You know, the Christian Methodists, or what as they were founded in the 19th century, the colored Methodist Episcopal is the denomination, not like the AME Church in Philly or the AME Zion in New York, but the CMEs were founded, of course, in the South. And uh, I think they're the first large denomination, maybe first denomination period in the Christian church of African descent in the United States founded in the South. And uh, they would, of course, if Reverend Wright is here this morning or not just Reverend, I keep, I keep calling Bob Jeremiah because he will keep all of us clear on the facts here. And then, but of course with uh, 
thousand people and, and more checking in on the Nubia side this morning. And then with all the people who comment in on the YouTube side over the arc of the week, the thousands more by order of magnitude that come in, we'll have the correctives. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those in a minute. I want to mention a couple of those between what we talked about last week and, and today. So he'll correct me if I'm wrong or someone who is who is seeing me. If y'all chime in, let me know. Seeing me. Because this actually is how the class is going to go. We, we've been previewing it. And I'll get to that in a minute. But um, yeah, the you know, they have a couple of HBCUs that the CME Church supports that they founded. Probably most famously, a former bishop of the CME Church, Bishop Isaac Lane. So those of you from West Tennessee, or East Mississippi who know Lane College there outside of Memphis, between Memphis and Nashville, closer to Memphis, West Tennessee, y'all know. Lane College. I've been through that campus several times over the arc of my life. But at any rate, they asked me to come to Chicago. And I did. And I came in on like a Saturday afternoon. And say, so put me up in a hotel downtown Chicago. And I got a lot of friends in Chicago, friends I stayed with, my family there. And, but you know, they said they insisted, you know, when you get to the, the, the high Negro church. And of course, I'm saying that tongue planted firmly in cheek. I mean, AME, AME Zion, CME, the National Baptist Convention, that kind of thing, the whole Church of God in Christ, the cogent, they got a certain protocol, you know, to borrow Angie Porter's word when she's dealing with this African legal theory, you know, legal studies, it's a protocol, you know, so protocol, hey, I'm not going to buck the protocol of black institutions. So, okay, y'all give me a hotel, I have to stay in a hotel. And so I went to church Sunday, you know, all the church-related activities, and then Monday we had the conversation, I flew on back to the East Coast. I was still in Philly at the time. But that Saturday after, you know, we sat there, we ate, we talked, and I went on up to the room, and it was still kind of early in the evening, learning that's six, seven o'clock. So I, I walked out of this hotel and me downtown Chicago. So I'm walking around. You know, I like to go look at the at the uh, the Ebony Building, the Ebony Jet Building, just always on their Michigan Avenue. They just just seeing that edifice, knowing that, that building was built for us by us, always inspires me. Of course, it's not ours anymore, but that's okay. It is what it is. That was when Borders was still around, Borders Bookstore. So there was a Borders down near the Water Tower. Y'all know Chicagoans know that's the building that in, in, in the narrative they spend. You know, this is the building that wasn't destroyed in the Great Fire of Chicago. Ms. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern and the whole city burned, but not this place, not the water, not the stone water tower. Well, just beyond that, those of you who know Chicago and knew Chicago at that time, there was a Borders Bookstore, another company that doesn't exist anymore so i went in you know as always ain't gonna pass no bookstores so i'm looking on the shelves and i went to the little black study section and i know the books by a lot of times the colors so i'm scared because most of the books i can tell you what they are if i see books like i know these books right especially in the black study section and so i saw a book whose colors i didn't recognize you know this kind of colors he just color clean like, what the hell taylor the mask of art so i pulled it out and i saw this sister on the front pregnant sister you know and i said the hell so I looked on the back and, and the first blurb, blurb said, this is a major, perhaps unprecedented project. Professor Taylor's deft scholarship and brilliant perception illuminate with refreshing clarity the intellectual history of the cultural crises lurking behind the mask of art. Tony Morrison. Mm. Okay. It was Morrison. Okay. But here's the thing. Number one, you can't trust no blurb on the back of a book. Number one. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Y'all heard that. That's that, that's from an award-winning best-selling author in the world. <laughs> she say that, right? Because he because then the, so the first thing I'm looking for on a book blurb is 
how this person know the author this your friend this the publisher saying we need some heavy hitters which is why mm-hmm. all these anti-racist books that have come out with the same people blurbing them that's the factory because i mean I, I don't know that y'all all in the pet club you know you got every generation in, in the last hundred years among black people whereas white publishers became aware of us you know they got a pet club you know they got a little pet club and then so the pets right on each other's value let me not get into it. I'll read Bluto up in the uh, Village Voice years ago with his article, What Are the Drums Saying, Booker? I mean, you know, I don't want to get into that because like these are my friends. That these, these are the black people that white people come and say, what are the drums saying? Drums say black race, unsatisfied. Drums say we need peace. Drums say healing. And then it's okay. You got the Negro interpreters. Okay, no problem. Anyway, but but probably you were chuckling. Tell, tell me, why did you why did you laugh when I said uh, I mean, because it's, mar- it's a marketing tool. So you have to get recognizable names that, that you know, that may or may not have re- read the book. Um, I've been asked several times to do blurbs, but if I, and I don't have time to read too many people's manuscripts at this point. So I decline because I don't want to lie and mm-hmm. say something's brilliant or whatever if I haven't read it and if I don't think it's brilliant. So um, by and large, I wouldn't probably never do a blurb except you know unless you ask me there's only like two people in the world i might do it for um but yeah no it's it's a marketing tool i see i see and you're saying that sometimes people write blurbs for books they haven't read i'm i'm not gonna say that yes i'm not gonna say it okay okay. (laughs) i love the way that you put this it says i I don't have time the time maybe i once did or did to read so of course you read anything you were blurb Okay, that's good. So you I, I think that's a contract, and then then it becomes awkward because if the book is not, if you don't think it's good, and it's all subjective, right? Because what's good to me may not be good to you, and that's that's the other thing. You know, I'm I I'm wildly aware that my tastes and sensibilities may not be for everybody. So how do you even, you know? And most of the the, the powerfully successful books have come from word of mouth anyway, right? So. I, yeah like even this we just started something hit and record not i don't know if anybody was going to listen now here we are 137 episodes later and thousands of people have joined us um in nubian narrative it's less than nubia's le- you know just a year old and narrative is two years going into three and and uh into february but you know youtube we'll get 20,000 30,000 40 i think we got 50,000 on one of the conversations we had about the queen mm-hmm and, and there's no COVID because we was doing six six figures and more doing COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we don't advertise, we don't nope. promote. I don't even I mean you may nope. put something up and then I'll retweet it. Yeah. But we after we're done, we move on about our day and, okay. and we, we got the shadow ban. Hmm? We got the little shadow ban on the algorithm too, because you almost gotta go looking for us. I'm like, look at yeah, y'all. look at y'all. I ain't mad at you though. Yeah, it's weird. But it's, it's weird. but but no, but so you saying okay, so yeah, word of mouth does it, huh? To me, I feel like that's the only way to build at this point. You know, feed people. They say, this is delicious. Like how you recommend restaurants, you know, like, hey, this is delicious. Some people will never have the appetite for it. That's fine. You can't force anyone, as we were talking about last week with salt. You know, so let's give them salt and make them thirsty. But, you know, I feel like we're at a point where we have to build with people who want to build. We have to build with people who want to be a part of the world that they may not see, but they want to participate in creating the world that we must live in to survive. And 
it is not for everyone. You know, what do they say? The, the work is plenty, but the workers are few. I, I feel that way. Mm. And the folk that are here right now in Nubia this morning, they're about this life. And I'm so grateful because you know what it is. We don't have to convince and cajole. If you've got to market too hard, then you. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I, I don't have the energy to do that work. So, it, no. you know, and I'm grateful for our team and Ahmad and 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 Urias and Carl and them. Um, but we don't, we're not heavy. We don't spend a dime on marketing. We're not trying to cross promote and on different platforms. We're not out there trying to get people come over here for Facebook. If you hear about it, because you heard about it from somebody that told you about it, and if you're here, it's because you know what it is. So that's right. That's right. It's so funny. We'll maybe talk about it more or less next week. I, you know, at this point. Like at homecoming at Howard, I don't really go around campus, but everybody comes to town. So it's interesting to see the older you get, the less time they spend on campus. Some people never make it to campus. It's like like black homecomings, like Tennessee State's homecoming. You know, folk come to campus for a couple of rituals, but they basically come to town and see each other. So you know, yesterday I went out, and you know, like you said, there are, there's only. Only certain kind of people can get me to come into public spaces around rituals like that. We got to have a relationship. And so I, yeah, I sat with a few and they, I kept running into people who I had taught 10, 15, 20 years ago at Howard. And then other people who were in town and it's a different kind of, and like you said, that is a, that is a network way beyond official alumni association events or administration events. Those two, those two circles don't really overlap. And our relationships are with each other, as you said. And folks are saying here, I'm just scrolling as you talking through the chat. Creative said, yeah, Walter Mosley broke down that blur business at a reading, uh, at a reading the other day, uh, or a reading that they attended. And somebody said, yeah, the ancestors told you to push that record button. It worked out. That's what, no question. Folks are commenting on it. And it, it is, we're having a relationship with each other. Um, so even in the, in, in in this book, so I'm sitting, I'm sitting up standing there in, in at Borders in Chicago on a Saturday night, looking at this book, trying to figure out, you know, but but it's the names that attract me. So the four blurbs on the back are Toni Morrison, Ms. Morrison. I did not know then what I found out later from her and from him and from their friend, Eleanor Trailer, who's still here in the area, the master teacher, that they all taught freshman comp at Howard together. And Clyde Taylor, Toni Morrison's friend. So, you know, Ms. Morrison wasn't known and isn't known for like willy nilly handing out blurbs, but a blurb from Tony Morrison can make all the difference in the world. I mean, you talk to Tata, okay. you ask him what the blurb from her did on the back of Between the World and Me before as mm. she becoming translated, making translation. You're very generous with that. And then the next blurb was Houston Baker, who at the time was still at the University of Pennsylvania. This is before he and his wife went to Duke and then eventually Vanderbilt. I know Houston Baker for a long time. Houston went to Howard and was a student of Sterling Brown. So I'm saying he, he was very generous with his blurb. And, say, and then the next blurb is really what caught my eye. Amiri Baraka. Mm. And I said, I know Maria Baraka ain't going to just write no, no lie. You know, I know Maria Baraka. Amiri Baraka is a Clyde Taylor is one of the most intellectually stimulating and readable cultural analysts writing. His intrepid and penetrating rationales and summations of a whole host of registrations in the world of ideas, particularly of their aesthetic presumptions, are always fascinating and deeply thoughtful, whether one absolutely agrees with him or not. Okay, you honest. Because I know Amir Baraka don't agree with himself all the time. So, I mean, he's just, I don't agree with this. Okay. Taylor is must reading for those who take the world seriously. Okay. And then Walter Mosley, who, as creative said here in the Nubia chat, you know, would tell you, told them the politics of book blurb, but he put a blurb on the back. I said, what is this worth? So then I opened the book 
And the first line, the preface and acknowledgments, plus he name checks Sylvia Winter. I'm saying, okay, hold on. Mm-hmm. You might be serious. He says, uh, this book tries to make a contribution to an important but still scattered discussion. The way people, things, and ideas are influenced by the social and political interests mediating their presentation, the politics of representation has become increasingly relevant with the enlarged role played by filtering and reproduction in our diet of intellectual impressions. My my immediate focus is an interrogation of the assumptions that dominate the present art culture system. Specifically, I challenge the veracity and probity of the aesthetic, he puts in quotation marks, the overdeveloped paradigm for control of our values regarding art and beauty, an 18th century intellectual plantation from whose grip most of us have yet to free ourselves. I said, okay, I'm taking this book back to the hotel. Now, I was ready when they came to get me. I was ready for church, sat through church, sat through the thing after, had a bit of a towel. We stayed on and came back and was knocked out Sunday night. Got up, did the thing. Why was I knocked out? Because I took this book back to the hotel and stayed up all night reading it. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't. So I'm going to make it through Sunday. And then Sunday night, I'm going to go to sleep because I got to work Monday morning here with these folks. We're going to have a conversation. And then I'll get back on the I sleep on the plane. I couldn't put it down. Clyde Taylor. And then, of course, I immediately put this in rotation for a class I would teach the following fall. That was January, whatever that year was, probably 2001 or two, because Clyde Taylor wasn't retired yet. And I looked up and I got a chance to sit with Clyde Taylor because after I had talked the book one time, the students in that aesthetics class were so fired up that they asked me if I would reach out to Clyde Taylor and ask him if he would come back to Howard where he used to work. I said, yeah, he came down and. I'll never forget Clyde Taylor coming to that room. This is a guy who is kind of known in high academic circles. And I'm saying high only in the social structure context. But, you know, he, he came to, he, which he's a frequent in and out of D.C., I came to find out later. But at that time, he came in and you got a bunch of 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds who not only read this book, but digested a great deal of it, had all kind of questions. And as he got up to give his kind of plenary so-called address had a day-long conversation around the mask of art they were talking about the papers and things they, they respond to and near the end of the day he got up to give his talk and he stood there and you know had that moment where you can tell somebody is choking up and he had to, he had to compose himself and he said i tell you when i wrote this i uh was hoping that somebody would get what i was saying and it's been well received in certain places he said i've never been in a room like this and to have young people take this very seriously. He says, it's very humbling. And that's when I realized, you know, he taught it many years at NYU. So you got the black academics there. You got the Amanthea Duaras. You got the uh, Deborah Willis's and the Mike Gomez's and others and many others who are there. But when you got a bunch of black students and at this time, you know, the mix at HBCUs is an interesting mix. You got young people who are there whose parents have the resources to write the check for their tuition. And you got young people there who don't have any money at all. Were there on scholarship or loans or financial aid? And the mix then was a little different, Howard, than the mix now, or more of the latter in that space. And I remember them coming up during the day and asking him to sign their books. I'm saying, this is why I came here. This is why I came here because there's some incredible intellectual work going on. And our young people are often not exposed to it. But that's not, that's not why I mentioned. I mentioned the mask of art today because in the context of what we're talking about, and like I so say, you you interviewed um 
um, um, Soledad Orion about this new movie. And we talk about, of course, the, the Sydney Poitier movie on Apple. And those of us who have been in the space narrative from the last two going on three years and now Nubia over this last year. Uh, and everyone who has been in class in this formation for now two and a half years, you know, we did an extensive dive into Sydney Poitier around the time he made transition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we talked about one need to talk about his first wife, talked about his children, talked about all of that conversation, how he came into the space. We went into Barbados, came back Bahamas, rather I keep saying Barbados, Bahamas. We did the whole narrative. So if you pause, if we, like I said, if we never did anything else again and we just went back on what we've done, you know, it shows you that of that field of things and what does uh, what does Clyde Taylor refer to it again of that field of the coach Clyde, Clyde Taylor. Uh, people, things, and ideas of which there is too much to absorb between people, things, and ideas between the world to borrow from the Richard Wright poem from which Tanasi Coates takes his title of his book between the world and me between, me between the world and us are the politics of representation so you got people out there who say I'm looking around too like y'all and now I'm going to turn around and tell you all what that is Why? because you don't have the time or you haven't taken the time to do it for yourself, or maybe you do do it to you for yourself, but I'm going to tell y'all. And then the question that Clyde Taylor keeps raising in this book is, who made you the person to interpret the world to them? And that's where you get into what he calls the art culture complex. Meaning what? These are the structures that want to shape our lives by telling us what's important and what's not. So these, this is, these are the filtration devices. And what Clyde Taylor in this book is writing about, he's saying that art in many ways isn't art that we that we respond to because we discovered it. It's art that we respond to because we were told this is what you should respond to. That's the aesthetic. It's the Western concept of what's good, what's bad, what's beautiful, what's ugly, all that. And to break out of that, you know, if we had all the time in the world, but of course we're selling our labor in order to have lights and some food, and maybe 15 minutes to sit and think. And if we got 15 minutes, are we going to research the homie? Are we gonna, no, are we going to, if we are lucky, get in a space like this where we can talk to each other about what we discovered and maybe two or three people who've had some more time or who sell their labor for the ability to do that. Somebody like me who, and Professor Hunter, you who sell our labor to do what we're doing right now. Uh, you know, or you could put down your 20 bucks or 17.50 or 22.95, whatever. And go sit in a two and a half hour movie and come out and say, okay, now I know. No, that's the politics of representation. Who made this movie? Why did they make this movie? So the question then becomes, why did they make the uh, rebellious life of Ms. Rosa Parks? Well, if you all remember, if you go back, when we've talked about Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin, when we when I showed you, for example, when we talked about April Woodson, my old friend April Woodson, who wrote a small book on Edgar Daniel Nixon, Edie Nixon. Uh, who, of course, Ms. Parks worked with, who worked with Ms. Parks in uh, Montgomery around NBCP. And I was going to show you when we t- the book uh, on, at the dark end of the street, which talks about when Rosa Parks went out and, you know, Reese Taylor and investigated the sexual assaults. All that. We, we talked about all that. And it's available now in the large and growing archive of conversations we've had that are increasingly collective, which is where I'm going with this in terms of the class. We'll be talking about that in a minute. But I mean, again, if you're selling your labor in order to stay indoors, you don't have a lot of time for that. Some people take jobs where they can sell their labor, where they can just read on the job. 
CLR James used to write about that and talk about that. You know, folks like, you know, Jimmy Boggs working in the factory, whatever. Part of the work is, is repetitive work. If you're a night security guard, you can sit there and read. That's a, still a, a tradition some people do. You know? But if you watch a narrative, a representation of the life of Rosa Parks, like the rebellious life of Ms. Rosa Parks, you can get a lot of good information. But it's still being curated. It's still being mediated because out of the vast life of Rosa Parks, this is what's being narrated to you. And so my question always with everything that is representation, every book, every film, every television show is why did you make the narrative choices you made? And what is the message that you want to communicate to us based on this vast palette of people, things and ideas? In other words, what is the politics of representation now? Finally, on this subject, we, of course, talked about uh, my friend Jean Jeannie Theo Harris. Jeannie Theo Harris, her sister, both the children of Professor Theo Harris, who made transitions a little while ago. Jeannie Theo Harris, uh, a in this society, I suppose we call a radical educator. Uh, she wrote the book, The Rebellious Life of Ms. Rosa Parks, on which this, this film is made. And when you read the book, you discover a lot of things about Rosa Parks that aren't as well known. But here's the thing about Ms. Parks. And I said this when we talked about it. In fact, I want to say we were in class uh, when I went down or either maybe I went down before COVID. I'm trying to remember when it opened. But I think I showed you all the uh, the exhibition catalog. Yeah, because it's been since Carla Hayden has been the librarian of Congress. They, you know, Library of Congress has a lot of Mrs. Parks papers. And they did a beautiful exhibit on Rosa Parks. And I won't be able to put my hands on it right now. I don't know. I had some exhibition catalogs in one place, but I yep. started doing stuff. Anyway. We did it um, live, actually, on YouTube, episode 40. And you also, that same episode, you also covered the Divine Nine. So mm. that was... Thank you for looking. Yes. Okay, so then we know that. Go back to episode 40, you'll know what we're talking about. So no need to go into all that. But I, I mean, the uh, reason I raise it is because Ms. Parks was always writing. So if you want to know about the rebellious life of Rosa Parks, I would say, and I'm going to watch the documentary and I'll be looking for the choices that were made by the filmmakers that left certain parts of the book out. And I read Jeannie Theo Harris's book a couple of times. And the first time I got a chance to meet her, we were talking about that because uh, she works very closely with a group of educators that I work with as well. My friends at the Zen Education uh, Project and Teaching for Change. Um, you've heard me talk about them many times, my friend Deborah Minkart and that whole crew. I mean, just radical educators, working class folk, poor folk, college professors, real excellent formation with all free resources. I've been managing a campaign over the last several years to teach reconstruction in the schools. And I'm very proud to be in that uh, formation with a number of those educators, high school teachers, elementary school teachers, community workers, after school program builders, curriculum writers, so many others who who do that work. But at any rate, so you read her book and it's like, this is interesting. Okay, this is good. I mean, but of course, anytime you write a book and you know this better than all of us, Prof, as many as you've written, that narrative is making choices. As mm -hmm. Clyde Taylor is saying, out of the panoply of everything that happened, you told this story. Why did you tell this story? I'm reading your narrative and I've got at the same time I'm reading and learning information. I'm also thinking about the rhythm, the politics of representation. Why did you say this this way and not this way? It, it never ceases to make me laugh to see how many of the African people who have fought for liberation of our people in this country are narrated as patriots in these books. Hmm. Well, you know, um, and I had this conversation with Soledad O'Brien 
the mm, let me come in. The, come on, yeah, you know, you know, I, I love the disembodied, the voice of goddess, but I also love to see your face. <laughs> so please come on in. <laughs> and this this may be, you know, I, I think I was naturally led to tell our stories through a black lens because that's the lens that I live my life through. And, you know, but for most people who are, who are given a green light, I'll say it like that, who are given a green light to do these projects, they're always putting, well, what will white people, what will they accept? Come on now. Because that becomes, you know, the, the commerce, right? Because we can't be offensive to what can't turn off white people because then we won't get funded and it won't be successful. We need white people to watch this. We need, so, so, so you, you do the patriotic thing because white people love patriotism. Yes. Which is also, you know, whiteness. No question about it. No question. So so, yeah, you have to make Rosa Parks palatable uh, to, and and it's just a knee jerk. It's natural that folk, and I'm not criticizing because it's just natural. They don't, even recognize that they're centering whiteness when they do this. They don't even consider it, which is why it's so, so important what you're doing with your Africana class. Yes, yes. Any creative who wants to create anything, yes, the framework has to be at the center of everything. And what you're doing with, with Inubia, with this class, if you want to create a documentary, a movie, film, TV series, and want to be true to us, you got to take this class. So uh, I was just thinking, because I, yeah. I wouldn't even know, yeah. it's natural to me, but the choices that I make now that I wouldn't, if I go back 20 years, man, I wouldn't even thought to make these choices now. Now it's just, it's just, it's like, and, and how I interview people. It's like, all right, let's pull back. All, okay. All right. What's informing you? Yes. Who are you centering in this? You know, like those questions is, even if you're running for office, who? Who, who's your who? Who are your constituents? I just um, we were supposed to interview Raphael Warnock this week, um, and I okay. wanted to bring some Nubians in because I'm like, Ooh. there are a lot of people in Georgia who are in Nubia, and they were like, we don't want, we don't want any questions. I'm like, what? Can, can, can you I? You just want questions from me? Can I interject here just very quickly? And this is for the Nubians. If you're not in yet, and you know you don't know about this, but I think that opening up a live chat while you're on the air is serious and opening up a live chat in Nubia, that is a stroke of genius. Another stroke of genius. Anyway, it happened, it happened because Twitter effed around and found out. You ooh, know. Ooh. Yeah. Remember I got hacked and yeah. then I was like, I don't have access to all right. So yeah. um Ahmad and Yuray's like, well let's just have a character to show Brilliant. chat. And I was like Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Right. And now that's, that's where I am now. Monday through Friday, three to six. I'm in the Nubia chat uh, oh. at the the Shell with, yes. with a thousand people. We're, I mean, you know, it's off the chain, but oh, yeah, that, yeah. that happened and it's about to happen. You know, Elon Musk, uh, if that deal actually finally goes through here, not only is he threatening to uh, lay off 75% of the workforce at yes. Twitter, that's what y'all get, first of all. Yeah. But I, I think the platform is going to change dramatically. And everyone's like, where should we go? And I was like, mm. uh, say less or say yeah. more. Or the, no, I was there because it was in today's paper as well. Okay. They are terrified out there in San Francisco. Is this man getting ready to get rid of three quarters of the Twitter? 75%. <laughs> who does that? Look, and, and as you know, better than I do, the golden parachutes for the guy who they think they're going to fire the press. The dude gets like a twenty million dollar buyout if he gets fired. They gonna be cool. They tell everybody, "Calm down, fool. You get ready to get 20, 20 mil. I need a job." They said that the people are already leaving. Well, they, I mean, it, 
it's we're we're in a forced that I, I think there's a deal made with the government to to force all of this unemployment so that they could stave off the the recession but uh at what cost you know and as you mentioned the rich the rich always do well during a recession always so always. the oil companies are making money because they're doing stock buybacks the gas prices aren't going up because of anything other than these rich people making money now, in Haiti, of course, they got a little bit of conversation. They, uh, the, the, the U.S. plant that we talked about extensively, Henri, wanted to take away the government subsidies because he's under orders, of course, from Washington. And and and, and so, uh, nah, these people who they're calling gangs and there are real problems in Haiti. Let's see, this isn't a good guys, bad guys thing in that respect. But they have surrounded the gas depot, which is 80 percent of the fuel in Haiti. And they're saying, nah. And uh-uh, we want a new government. We want, and they say, oh, these gangsters are leading this, and this dude nicknamed Barbecue is in front. Okay, all that's true, too. But what is also true is that y'all are price gouging, and you are telling the Haitians what to do. So the United States is getting ready to invade. But no, 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 but, but, but yeah, this, this question of narrative choices we're making, and all this is, we're going to tie this together in a moment. Um, And somebody, I think it was Nubian Candy, said in the chat, here in Louis Gates is, is, is listening to us over here. He don't have to listen to us. Uh, I, he might be. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he, I, I, I have been chuckling as well at the number of my academic friends who've been peeking in to this conversation. <laughs> and I'm just laughing because we're not doing it for y'all. Oh, y'all can come on in. In fact, we wish you could come on in and join. You could be free here. It's okay to be free. You know, when they talk about the politics of Marinage or Marunich, the runaway Negroes during enslavement, you know, you have Grand Marinage where you had like the Haitian revolution where they took over the whole society or in Brazil, Palmares, Ganga Zumba, you know, Gas said about that and everybody else, uh, the great dismal swamp in Virginia, North Carolina, where they just got away. And then you got petite marinage, people who spit in the grits and put ground up glass and people who break the tools. People, And then a lot of those people knew each other. So in Jamaica, the Blue Mountain Maroons, where they knew the people on the plantation, sometimes they would escape. The Maroons would tell the British, okay, uh, we'll make a treaty with you. And if anybody escapes to us, we'll bring them back to you in exchange for being left alone. They would say, good. And then the Africans had learned to treat white people the same way white people treat you. Meaning what? You can't trust nothing to come out of my mouth. Good. Now we the contempt is mutual. So therefore they would run away and they'd be like, did they come out here? No, nah, they, they ain't coming out here. We told you that we got a treaty. We'll, we'll, we'll send them back. Anyway, my point is that a lot of our academics, a lot of our producers and filmmakers and people who are ensconced in the social structure, it's not a good or bad narrative, but they make petite marinage. Let me slip in a line here. Let me interview this person who I know is not on the approved list here. Let me push a little bit closer to the theme here. But the grand marinage, what we doing? In other words, we just ourselves. And so if you're involved in petite marinage, come on over here where you can rest and you can be yourself. Now, I mean, don't unless you're afraid that some of this conversation will get back to your master and then you might lose your job. But you know what? If enough of us do this, you ain't got to worry about that job. Then you could be free. Uh, these are the Negroes who often engage in the largest outbursts when they are violated by the people with whom they should know. You can't trust nothing to come out of their mouth. I mean, our, our, our friend and brother here, Louis Gates, when he was arrested on the porch of his own house, accused by his neighbors of breaking into his own house. Nobody cursing louder. Then Skip Gates, when he gets pulled out of his own house, nobody talking about the police's mama and the MFs and all this. And here Louis Gates as he's pulled out. I mean, it's a tragedy what happened to that brother. Like, I did everything y'all would. Yeah, I mean, you can't trust them people. But the point I'm trying to make is this finally coming back to it. You know, we drive what we want. 
the politics of representation, and this is Clive Taylor's point, if you're going to break the contract with these people who want to represent you to yourself and guide what you should be thinking, you have to turn to yourself. And so he spends the last third of the book saying, what would that look like? He goes through this whole concept, so whole conversation around discursive irony. He, he talks about the master narrative and how that narrative is never displaced. He said, when you look at a movie like Birth of a Nation, and you know, of course, thanks to Nubia, we were actually able to sit with, within our gates, we looked at a little Oscar Michaud. You know, Michaud was looking at this same period that, uh, that um, Birth of a Nation, D.W. Uh, Griffith looked at. But D.W. Griffith is telling a story about white supremacy. So the Ku Klux Klan are the defenders of white Christianity. They are the patriarchs defending white womanhood. And they are the ones who have the force of white Christianity in them. And they are defending against the forces of darkness, the Negro in Reconstruction. So Birth of a Nation is a redemption narrative. It is a triumph over the evil surge of this empire of darkness that is coming in. And, and it becomes a platform. It's a master narrative. And so uh, Clyde Taylor writes and says, do we see that master narrative again? He said, yeah, you see it all through the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s. You see it in the master narratives. Only a certain type of Negro can be in these films, a servant or an elegant slave like a city portier in, uh, in Guess Who's Coming to, di to Dinner. But guess what? People setting fire to the city. So maybe by the heat of the night, it's a slave that can slap a white man on screen. And Sidney Poitier would only be too happy because his petite marinage has gotten a little bit more room to operate because of the grand marinage of Africans pushing back against this system. So you get a little bit of a break. And then the system realizes people are not going to buy movie tickets too much longer with them playing maids. So let's let a few more in. So, you know, I mean, you see, you know, but of course now we're going to temper it. So you see, you know, uh, uh, Diane Carroll, you know, Cindy Poitier's love, you know, that romance there. If you have the legs of the first to go, when we talked about that, uh, Diane Carroll writing about that relationship very differently than Cindy Poitier writing about it in my life and talking about it. But at any rate, you know, Julia, she could be a nurse. You know, but you know, you don't know about a man in there. And, and, and Esther Rose shows up and says, well, I'm going to have a husband. So good times until, of course, they buck against that. So now you're going to have J.J. elevated and Jane... Uh, John Amos got to get his walking papers. So it's like, so many of my point is that these things that we see in the politics of representation are absolutely shaped by external forces. So there is what people want to mediate us to stay in. And then there's what we respond to. And often the latter is going to shape the former. And you can see in the popular culture how far they will go to stay in power. So by the time, for example, now this last example from Clyde Taylor's book, which really blew a lot of the students' minds, and they had all these questions about him for this. He said, so if you want to see Birth of a Nation in a, in a later film, look at Star Wars. What? Star Wars is Birth of a Nation? He said, no, just work with me for a minute. He said, the forces of darkness, who was that? Darth Vader. Yeah, the black, you know, with a black man voice, James Earl Jones. Uh, okay, there's a dark side to the force. What is the force? Yeah, the force is Christianity. What do you mean? It's that thing that if you tap into on the good side, it brings you, but you tap into on the bad side, you got you to defeat the bad side. Okay, what are they protecting? Ooh, they want to be free. Mm -hmm. No, who are they protecting? Princess Leia. Oh, the white woman. Mm. Who are her guards? The droid? You know them two slaves? Oh, yeah, the slave, because the erudite slave is almost a trope in the 19th century. Go back to the, 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 the Negro they named Pompey or Caesar. 
you know, Caesar, like uh, mm-hmm. the apes. You know, you take the, it's what he calls discursive irony. You take the name of the thing that's most valued in your culture, give it to the thing you've most degraded. And that reinforces in the imagination the fact that you are in charge. I'm gonna name this monkey Caesar. I'm gonna name this enslaved person Pompey or Caesar. And so in Star Wars, the droid that speaks like this, master, it's always going to be, that's the minstrel, that's the slave butler. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Then you got the little one who can't, un- you don't understand nothing he say, the electronic ebonics. <laughs> the only thing, you know what I'm saying? But he the one who always in harm's way, always getting shot. And then he drops the bomb, Clive Taylor. He says, and who's trying to fight all this, protect the white woman, had the people come out of that? Well, that would be the clan. Oh, no, you don't call it, I'm sorry. It's called the Jedi Knights. What? Yeah, may the force be with you. Man, these kids had their minds blown by Clyde Taylor, but I did too. That hotel room all night, Saturday night, reading the mask of art. He said, because the politics of representation has to reinforce in your mind the hierarchy. Which is why all these movies, no matter what they are, they're all speaking with British accents. But British is not the uh, is not the coin of the realm of the best of the European culture. No, it's not. So why are we all speaking with British accents? Because the British won the war for the mind. So I don't care if you in uh, Russia with a remake, another millionth remake of Anna Karenina. I don't care if you in Latin America. <laughs> I don't care if you dealing with Cervantes. You know, you know, you know, made Don Quixote again. They all have British accents. I feel you got a British accent. Please understand. But anyway, but meanwhile, the people respond to what the people respond to. So another long days, every day's work. Not complaining, just noting. And there are little moments when, go back to our conversation, and of course we had prior, the power to pause, where you just reset. Now you can sit. If you got two seconds, take a breath, let the breath out, you reset. If you got a couple of hours, maybe you go for a walk. For me, it's the middle of the night. Wait, I ain't got nothing on until in the morning. Okay, so Thursday night, I snuck away, and I sat in the theater by myself and watched Black Adam. What? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'm a comic book man. I've been reading Black Adam. You remember Black Adam? Well, y'all know. If you read comic book, Urias know. If you read Black Adam, you know Black Adam been fighting Shazam for decades. Black Adam goes back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now I don't know if I trust Dwayne Johnson saying he's been trying to get Black Adam made for decades, but I do trust The Rock for this. I don't know. Have you ever talked to him? I'm sure you have. Never. No, I haven't. I haven't. The closest I got to him was at Madame Tussauds um, Wax Museum. <laughs> I saw his figure. I took a picture of him at, at the Wax Museum. Oh, I need that laugh. Hey, that dude fascinates me. Of course, his father, Rocky Johnson, you know, mm-hmm. African American mother, Samoan. Very interesting. I'm loving um they have Young Rock on uh I think you can catch it on Peacock as well. Yeah. I'm loving that because it's you know nostalgic with Andre the Giant and yes. you know all of that Randy Savage. I mean, it's it's oh Randy Macho right, yeah. and and you know he and we're getting to relive all of that and Rocky and and getting to see his dad and his mom's relationship and his grandmother and it's it's well done. He is definitely a fascinating figure. They should call this light skinned it. Um, Adam, no, they should call it <laughs> light skinned Right. Well, yeah. see, but see, this is the thing. This is what Cartier is writing about: the politics of representation. It is fascinating. And see, you just laid it. See, and I'm sure everybody here, and there may be some people outside the United States, other places who were not aware of Dwayne Johnson's life history, 
but it is a it is a black history. It's certainly a non-white history. It's an indigenous and black history. But he has figured out a way, as you say, to thread that needle. Now, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, the biggest, the the biggest, the highest the biggest. paid. He is the highest paid. You know, I wanted to qualify it, but it is. He's the biggest. He the is the highest paid. Wow. Well, I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts for Black Adam in case y'all want to look at it. And let me be very clear. Black Adam is a comic book movie. See, people start, you know, and and, and I look at uh, Nnedi Okafor with uh, Shuri. Uh, I look at uh, Roxanne Guy and Yona Harvey when they were writing uh, the Dora Milaje spinoff on the Black Panther comic book on Wakanda. Wakanda Forever and others. I look at my, my friend and brother, Tanazi Coates, when he was writing Black Panther, John Ridley now writing Black Panther. Before that, Reginald Hudlin writing Black Panther. And of course, we talked about that extensively. We talked about those comic books extensively. And, and you know, Urias knows a lot of these cats well. How they were, you know, going back uh, to Christopher Priest. And before Priest, you get the white dude who introduces Ramonda, who is now being played in the movies, of course. Uh, um, by uh oh my goodness what's the sister's name i just blanked on it uh playing the queen shuri's mom um who angela bassett angela bassett yeah i'm sorry i just blanked out. I was like i'm pulling the narrative thread so i'm annotating in my mind let's go for yeah but these things go back to the 60s of course where stan lee and jack kirby and them created black panther in 1966 now what you about to see is the black panther party emerge remember he was known as the cold tiger initially that was the nickname for patrice lumumba that's too black so black panther gets dialed back a little bit but he comes into existence in a moment when the people outside who are not involved in the politics of representation are pushing so you drop him in at the same time, you drop a lot of people in. So when Ryan Coogler is going to drop a Submariner in, as we talked about in Black Panther 2, we talked about this last week, who, you know, is speaking in indigenous language, not even Spanish, coming out of Central America. It's like, wow, this is this is fascinating. Anyway, I went through all that to say this. People going to respond differently than those who push representation, which you were saying, Professor Hunter. So uh, Black Adam is getting destroyed by the critics like a 44% rating or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, it's trash, trash, trash. But the people are like, we love it. Right. See, this is what y'all gotta understand. It's called Black Adam and not light-skinned Adam, as you say, because they want Black Adam. You know what I'm saying? And Dwayne Johnson want Black Adam. Now, he done convinced the studio, they done switched out all the leadership at Warner Brothers. They may switch out again soon, but he said, hey, you know, I'm doing this because, you know, I want to get Henry Cavill back in the conversation. The white boy y'all love as Superman and the, and the previous Warner Brothers people like, we don't want him because he wants too much money. man." Dwayne Johnson, like, I'm thinking long range. In other words, I'm getting ready to be the driver of the DC universe. Because, you know, DC has had a rocky relationship. You know, they, they made the first comic book movie, big box office movie, with Christopher Reeve, Superman. Then Marvel passed them in the fast lane. But, of course, they have everything. Who they have to think about it is the cat who's now too old to play Blade, of course, Wesley Snipes, because Blade was the movie in the Marvel Universe that launched it. It was not Robert Downey Jr. Jr. and the Russell Brothers and Iron Man. It was Blade <laughs> that showed them the way. And those black characters now, hell, it's like you got to go looking for white characters. If you look at, so I went to Black Adam so I could see my man uh, um, Alden, uh, what's his name, Alden, Aldous Hodge playing Hawkman. They got the other sister, uh, the young sister, African sister playing Cyclone. 
you know, he's got he got one white boy in the Justice Society of uh, of America, the older guy who used to be Remington Steele. He playing Doctor Fate. I'm saying, what the hell are they doing? This is demographics. Cortez is the politics of representation. You seeing yourself in the movie because y'all done turned away from these movies with all white people. And guess what, Dwayne Johnson figuring? Hmm. Y'all done made a mess of the DC Cinematic Universe. Y'all make money, but they be trashing y'all movies. I'm going to show y'all something. So here come the critics who Clyde Taylor writes about. The critics are the ones supposed to tell you what to watch, but the people want to watch what the people want to watch. So he done made a movie where you can sit there going there. You're not going in there looking for Sophie's Choice. You're not going in there looking for the color purple. You're not going in there looking for Queen of Slam or some derivative kind of attempt to make some cinematic half art movie, half popular movie. You're not going to look for middle of nowhere. You're not going, you're going to look for an ass-whooping, handing out comic book movie. With the cat giving this half one-liners like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So he got the pro wrestler persona in there. He got the, the humor joint in there. He got the little, you know, he got the all. The, and I'm looking, I'm sitting here in the movie theater like, huh, this is great. Because <laughs> I'm not watching it to absorb some lessons, some morality play. I'm watching this like a long-ass commercial. How <laughs> is he going to make all the money? I walked out there like this dude can really make all the money because the critics don't give you know ain't nobody listening to the critics ain't nobody listening to the critics i love armand white because armand white don't like nothing i mean i mean i ain't got to agree with armand white i just like the fact he don't like nothing if armand white likes something i'm looking like hmm i should go see this if armand white hates something i'm like i ain't gotta go see this but i think i'm gonna go see this i'm not taking my cues from armand white armand white trashed black adam of course he did he said it's the worst kind of race grifting stereotype. And I'm saying, yeah, but this is what the people are going to watch. <laughs> this is hilarious. This man done figured out. Now, mark my words, just like last week. Remember, Pro? We were sitting here talking. And once she threw the brother under the bus, Kwame Quartain, who she sent out there to mess the budget the way he did, we knew Liz Trust going to be gone. And guess what? She gone. If you paying attention, you know the rhythms. Yes. Mark my words. Dwayne The Rock Johnson get ready to run the whole DC universe. <laughs> but to your point you made a few minutes ago, what the people want is going to push through at some point what these people are trying to tell you you should want. And that's why, as you say, uh, Nubian Candy, Hearing Those Gates got a new documentary out. I haven't watched it. I will probably at some point watch it. But only to have the information, because remember, we did a whole thing on his, the black church, and we separated out the governance structure from the social structure. Professor Gates has done a genius job of convening folk to attempt to blend those two things, the social structure and the governance structure. He working overtime to blend those two things. But guess what, brother? You can't blend oil and water. But you should keep trying. You should keep trying because here's the unintended consequence it has. Or maybe this is what you're trying to do. Again, if it's petite morinage, you ain't going to walk off the plantation, but you damn sure going to try to make the plantation a little more humane. And I'm not against that because in some part, that means you're moving the social structure one step closer to its, in, to its inevitable collapse. So when you see the rebellious life of Rose Parks on a major network platform, albeit they're digital. When you see another PBS documentary on black people where they talking about spades and the things black people do that white people don't see, you know, another set of field notes as Anderson Thompson used to call it slave rebellion research, but now they talking a little stronger. That's because all those people who not paying attention, all that grand marinage, 
is beyond these people's capacity to control. So they got to join it. And they got to cultivate some more people to help speak eloquently. But what they don't realize is we don't be watching that stuff like that. And if we watch it, it's cool. But it's not at the center of our space. And shout out to our sister Tanya, who is she's on Broadway now with Raisin. They just they, they're redoing Raisin in the Sun. She's at the public theater. Uh, the public. Yeah. Yep. I just bought a bunch of tickets to that, too. Because that's how if I ain't going to be there breathing on people, I'm going. <laughs> right. You said that. Right? Yep. No question. I mean, but these things aren't showing up. You know, Keith Bochamp and, and the Till movie, you know, it's a long, uh, in fact, I didn't even know this was a thing, y'all, but I found this magazine because, you know, I'd be stalking everywhere to get everything from anywhere I could find it. I didn't even know, uh, this is my bag from yesterday and I just got this yesterday. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Oh, wait, do I have it? No, that's the Vanity Fair joint. I just bought that. Oh, that's too bad. I, I know I put that in here because. Or I thought I did. If I didn't, I'll just tell y'all about it. I wish I could show you the cover because it tripped me out. I told the lady at the checkout counter, I ain't never heard of this before. Oh, man. I must have hmm, left it. It's a magazine on like black cannabis, I think is the name of it. Whoopi Goldberg is the lead article. I'm like, Whoopi, give me that magazine. I need that magazine. Anyway, I know she's one of the producer, one of the producers of Till. You know, they said, how many more times are they going to make an Emmett Till movie? I haven't seen it yet. I eventually will see it at some point. But, you know, those of you who have seen it, you should let us know what's going on in there. Um, but again, these things are showing up because these people can't stay in charge by just keep running out the same people all the time. And Clyde Taylor talks about the politics of representation. So let's 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 put that in the context of what we uh what we um what we came into space today to tie up and then talk about the class for a few minutes before we get out of here. Excuse me, y'all. I'm still got a little sniffle. I'm still drinking my tea, Sunyata. Sunyata Amin, who's got some kind of course. Y'all need to go to you go to Calabash Tea, go to the uh website. She's teaching a course this week, I think, on um how to make your own uh herbal and, and remedy. I mean, a whole lot of stuff she's doing. I mean, un, under the uh, I forget what the banner is. We'll have to ask her tomorrow. Well, she's gonna be doing a weekly segment on the Karen Hunter show on Wellness Week. Oh, yes, starting yes. on Wednesday. So Ooh, you you bringing the head witch in? That's the name of it. it's called that Herb Witch Workshop. That's what she's doing Thursday. I think she said it's free for anybody who want to log in on Zoom. They got an in person thing, but I think she said you she's coming in. Ooh, see, see, we're gonna be free. We about to be free for real. <laughs> So I'm, I'm just saying, this is what is happening. And when you when they can't control it, they're going to try to join it. No problem. You join from the periphery because Grand Marunage cannot be joined. It is maroon space. Yeah, Petite Marunage, y'all do what y'all do. Um, yeah, but before I say anything else, I do want to mention, uh, and thank you, Larry Crow, and somebody on the YouTube side put this in the, in the uh, responses too. I, start, I started going back now looking at them and I reply to a few. Uh, uh, um, um, Sister Cress was not married to margaret cress uh two of the three cress sisters are still on this side uh, margaret cress and um lauren cress love of course their sister francis cress wilson when we talked last week uh we were talking about ethel minor and her cousins um but francis i'm sorry not francis um barbara cress was married to robert lawrence not guillaume bluford robert lawrence was the first black astronaut um, he was born in 1935 and he married 
uh, Barbara Crest, who was at the funeral at um, Ethel Miner's uh, funeral. And so they were telling that story. And so I misspoke. But of course, I ain't got to worry about it with Larry Crow around because Larry know all that stuff. So he, he was talking about, you know, Robert Lawrence never made it to space. He probably would have been the first black person in space, but he was killed in a test pilot accident. He was actually sitting in the in the in the in the second seat behind a trainee, some white boy they had put in. And according to the family history, the governance history, he was killed. Because the white boy he had in there who didn't have a lot of good training, they coming in for a landing and the guy messes up, hits the eject button, the white boy survived. Now the second seat where Robert Lawrence was uh was in, the second seat has to deploy a, a second or two after the first seat so that you don't, you know, bump into them. Well, he hit his, came out sideways, was killed instantly. So he was not the first black man to go into space, but it was Robert Lawrence, Robert Henry Lawrence Jr. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. And thank you. Somebody in YouTube put that in this one. Thank you all. Because, and this actually is going to speak to you in a minute. I'm going to talk about the, the course. This is at the heart of how we do the course. This is the course as we walk this walk together that will yield that kind of thing so in terms of a ride i just wanted to to say that uh but i'm going to do a quick piece on the woman king because i think we talked about it some last week but i want to tie it into what we're talking about so let's pause here just for a second and understand that this conversation that has emerged very organically today as it does every week really speaks to these large these deeper themes that structure this coursework we are doing. So here we have a movie, The Woman King, no different than Black Adam. In other words, some instrument, some device to get you to part with your hard-earned money. But you want to come see something that looks increasingly like you. And it's got a little muscle to it. And The Woman King does that. We are knowing the social structure that you can call something the woman king, but there's nothing that translates that like that in the cultures of Dahomey, among the Fong people, the Agoji, the women who were warriors in that space. We know that there wasn't anything like that. So in the penultimate moment, when you see John Boyega point his sword toward Viola Davis, hey, the woman king. Okay. Okay, very good. Did I get you 1750? I got you 22. 50 using the IMAX joint, right? Good. Come back and see it again. Word of mouth passing. Number one. I'm tripping out. How y'all gonna try? So is this is this a test? The critics gonna try to kneecap rock the rock. The rock knows what sells. Why? His daddy them. That's what theater is. Come on, brother. Let's fuck to all us spitting, screaming at the top of our lungs at the TV. Here comes Randy Macho Man Sherry. This is the lineage of performers. The boy grew up looking at it. You know what I'm saying? He know what sell. I don't give a damn what you critics say. Tell him the man in black sent you. Did he blow up a, a, a airplane with his fists in Black Adam? This, this is what he want to see, man. I'm sitting there like, boy, this is what Gary make all the money. He don't give a damn. So in The Woman King, you got the stuff you got the fighting in the van. Okay, these black women, badass. Okay, so this sent me, of course, to the library, to my library. And here's a very interesting book that I had read parts of a long time ago, but I pulled it off the shelf 
Fortunately, it wasn't in storage. Ancestors don't make no mistakes. This is a book I would normally have put in storage because I have had this book for a long time. It's called War and Gender by Joshua Goldstein. A big, thick-ass book. Cambridge University Press, 500 pages. The whole book is about, in fact, I'll just read you uh, uh, the, the framing. Gender roles are nowhere more prominent than in war, yet contentious debates and the scattering of scholarship across academic disciplines have obscured understanding of how gender affects war and vice versa. In this authoritative and lively review of our state of knowledge, this was 2001 when the book came out, so. Joshua Goldstein assesses the possible explanations for the near total exclusion of women from combat forces through history and across cultures. Topics include the, the history of women who did fight and fought well, the complex role of testosterone in men's social behaviors, and the construction of masculinity and femininity in the shadow of war. Goldstein concludes that killing in war does not come naturally for either gender. And of course, he says either gender, but you know. And that gender norms often shape men, women, and children to the needs of the war system. There you go. War is not the answer, for only love can conquer hate. War might be the answer. If you don't fall, an oil trying to take you. So what looks, by the time you get it to the woman king, as an act of aggression, was born in part as an act of self-defense. And why is oil expanding? Well, there are internal reasons and external reasons. Some of the external reasons is these Europeans that got on boats and slowly coming down the coast of West Africa and then down West Central Africa and then going around the so-called Cape of Good Hope into East Africa and then the Indian Ocean, they are setting up a world system that is designed to exploit Portugal, Spain, France, England, the Dutch. The external factors of this social structure that is being developed are feeding internal problems, creating conflicts where there were none, exacerbating, exacerbating conflicts where there were. And so the rise of Dahomey, as we talked about, and we've talked about a couple of times, certainly extensively in office hours, and then last week as a gesture kind of a bit toward, and I don't want to get too deep into this. Again, I'm setting the stage for where the real work is coming from that is emerging from this conversation we're having in Nubia, on, certainly in terms of this particularly one on Monday nights with the class he about to emerge. We're beginning to de-layer people, places, and things from how those people, places, and things are mediated. The politics of representation. Realizing that every time something is represented, it's a narrative, including this moment. We're, you know, Prof, you and I are making choices right now. This is why the participation in this course has to be collective because what expertise is based on is representation. That's the whole university system. You pay all that money to come and sit so that people like Hunter and Carr can talk to you and guide you in a way and you supposed to be able to trust that we know more about it than you do. At its best, that should be true. At its worst, whether it's true or not, you done paid your money and so you're going to do what we say. Now. If we're going to have a course and we are having a course, which is us, then we're about to invert that process. So when we hear Professor Karen Hunter say, bring your brick, bring in yourself, we're all experts in who we are. And it's through this collective work that we emerge 
and invert that. That's really what jailbreaking means. So anyway, in this Warren Gender thing, I said, okay, you know, let me see, because I remember but vaguely, he talks about Dahomey. He does in chapter two called Women Warriors, the historical record of female combatants. And he goes through four categories, one female combat units. He said, there's only one. And he actually quotes Stanley Alpert, whose book I mentioned, you've been mentioning, we talked about this more on Monday night, Stanley Alpert, rather, Amazon's of Black Sparta. There are a couple of books, but uh, The Women Warriors of the Homie, this is the second edition where he talks about the other major book. But um, Goldstein quotes him. He said, you know, he said, this is the one instance that I'm aware of in world history, find a page book, where the women had their own combat unit as women. The other categories, you've got mixed gender units. Uh, he talks about the Russians, for example. Uh, he talks about individual women fighters and women military leaders. In, in, um, in mixed gender units, he also looks at the support groups. See, I know like the Women's Army Corps in the US, World War I, World War II, most of that's 20th century stuff. And now women in the military, this kind of thing. But in terms of just women, and then of course, when he gets into it, he doesn't speak, he only spends about maybe, maybe seven or eight pages, six, no, actually about four or five pages in here on uh, Dahomey. But, but, it, but it's in the context of this larger thing that war is unnatural for any human being to kill somebody else. So he starts talking about the politics and culture of war. Why are you killing people? Well, of course, the politics of representation will have you believe that black people will kill each other because that's our nature. Who in the hell came up with that? And that we should be liking the idea of killing people. Whether it's Viola Davis cutting somebody's head clean off or Dwayne Johnson holding some soldier by the neck until he electrify him and his skull and body turn into dust. What the hell? What's all this fighting? War is not the answer. Didn't you listen to no militarism? Why? Because we live in a social structure that's all about handing out ass whoopings. Or and that violence doesn't necessarily have to be physical. It could be economic violence, as uh, Ice Cube once said in, uh, in, uh, in No Vaseline. Now let's play Big Bank, take Little Bank. I mean, in other words, these violences are what allows the modern world system to persist. So meanwhile, while they were doing all this fighting and taking people back and forth, remember, of course, I talked about this last week. We read Barracoon. Remember how Kasula talks about what happened when those sisters came in and were beheading people and separating families and shuffling them out. This man is a victim. He gets brought and put on a boat, him, um, the woman who becomes his wife and these other survivors. Of, and I think there's a new movie that just came on Netflix, right? The, uh, in the Obama, uh, uh, the Obama abetted portion of Netflix. Again, representation. How does the story, uh, what's it called? Descendants, I think. Have you heard of it? Did you have anybody yet in the conversation? Around? No, not yet. Okay, yeah. Uh, on Netflix, I think, Descendants. I haven't watched it. Again, see, the more you know, the more difficult it is for you to watch these representations because you see the erasures, the, the narrative choices. So I'm, I'll watch uh, the um, the Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, but knowing what I know and knowing I will continue to know more as I learn and listen, I, I'm looking for the narrative choices. And you just, I mean, I love it. I mean, you always, you always figure out a way to make this about democracy. Propping up that lie called democracy because it ain't never existed. It wasn't in Athenian Greece. It was not in Greece. It was not in Rome. You've never had it. Now, if you look at Dahomey, they say, well, those people were brutal. They would kill each other. Yeah, but, you know, they had women and men in the divisions and there was a woman and a man at every level of the hierarchy. And in many cases, when you read Alpern's book or anything about the, uh, the Goji, you had 
what men had to check off with the women. The idea of the woman king, it's like, eh, eh, you see a glimpse of it in the movie. You see them trying to shoehorn in. The best movies to me, the ones that make me chuckle the most are the ones where they try to get in the governance narrative. Because you see, you, you I'm watching a movie like that and I'm thinking, where was this war? Was it in the writer's room? Did somebody go off script? Did the actor say, I'm not going to show up? Unless, I mean, I'm just saying, where was the war that led to us being able to see this on the screen? Or, and the other thing is the idea of things that translate two or three different times. Uh, Taylor writes about, as again, the question of irony. Irony in one way can be described as so you say one thing and it means something different to different people based on who they are. So, you know, there'll be lines in movies now where you absolutely know that whoever directed this movie does not know what that means to black people. <laughs> they put that in there. It's like, ha ha, why are you laughing? So it's cool. Keep watching the movie. This is hilarious to me. I mean, usually it's in the purview of comedy, but it's increasingly finding its way into the white stream movies. So anyway, we know that from Barracoon, we know how, how he talked about that. But here's the thing. Uh, our friend and sister Natalie Roberson, uh, professor emeritus from Hampton University, wrote in many ways what is the best book that connects West Africa to uh, to uh, the homie, to the diaspora, the slave ship Clotilda, as we've talked about, and the making of Africatown, USA, spirit of our ancestors. And she writes about something else I mentioned uh, last week, which is, of course, when Martin Delaney, who we also read about, Martin Delaney in 1859 is actually in Dahomey, in Nigeria, and negotiates. Let me see. Let me just read this out loud as I continue here. Uh, where is it? Let me see here. Give me about three seconds here. I think it's in chapter. Hold on a second. Give me a second here. 122. I want to make sure I have it right. I want to make sure I'm right before I let go. Here we go. Yeah. In the chapter called Central Nigeria. Let me see. Watch this. He says, uh, she says, now she's traveling. Natalie Robeson went back to the places where these Africans were taken from, including those Africans who were taken at the behest of the women warriors who captured them, the women who were in the woman king, like Kasula. She says, by traveling to southern Kaduna, I made some important discoveries regarding the culture and geographical origins of those Clotilda Africans who originated in that state. It became apparent that Abaki, Jaba, Kano, and their Atakar co-captives were captured within a 30-mile radius of Kafankan in hamlets, fields, and towns that are linked by the Kogoro Road. Secondly, they hailed from groups that were heavily raised by, raided rather, by House Fulani horsemen during the 19th century. Thirdly, their indigenous descendants remain in those areas today. Before I left Takad, I asked the Aguam if he had a message for the Clotilda descendants in Africa town. This ain't in the woman king. They just talking about the Africans who got captured in the woman king. They don't show you where they ended up. Oh, this is where we're going in a minute. He replied, quote, my wish for your research is that it would solidify, without a doubt, those transatlantic links that would allow Atakar peoples to confidently think of the Clotilda descendants as brothers and sisters. Hmm. Lastly, he extended to Cod land to the Clotilda descendants. So he's telling them, you in Alabama, you can come here. Remember, we had that whole conversation in Nubia. And I think it, uh, oh my goodness, who was it? Um, hmm. Was like, you should. Oh wait, it was the sister who was descended from the from the descendant from 
from Kasula, who said, well, you know, we should ask, we should ask them. He wanted to be where his parents were when he wanted to be buried. Remember, he told us only in Hurston, I took my shoes off when he took the picture because it reminds me of being home. I'd like to be home. But his family was here in Alabama. So, of course, they are buried in the same burial ground. My, my friend and sister, Afia Zakia, who is now the director of the Descendants uh, Formation there in Mobile, we've been talking about this, um, who came on after this movie has showed up. Because, again, white folks have discovered Ben Rain's got a new book. We talked about that. Netflix got a movie. That's all representation. But who are we to each other? That's a governance conversation. Very different. But there is now there are Africans here. We ain't got to go back nowhere to be Africans. But we should have a relationship with the place our ancestors came from, which is what Natalie Robeson does when she goes backward to talk to these people and back and forth and reestablish these bonds. But watch this. She said, in addition to being spiritually moving, she said, that offer to tell these people from Alabama, you know, you can come here. So no, Kasula, they're not going to dig him up and repatri repatriate him because he doesn't know where his family is, which is what the sister was saying. If you, we knew where his parents were, maybe you take his body and take him back to his parents in West Africa, but you don't know where they are. So maybe you take uh, something of his, some dirt maybe from the grave and take that and that has been done. Now you got some, some rituals where you can connect, draw these larger collections. Natalie Robeson writes, in addition to being spiritually moving, ways of knowing category, the offers of land by Africans to black Americans has historical precedence. Going with this, somewhere with this. During his exploratory mission to the Niger Valley made one year before the Clotilda smuggling venture occurred, Martin Delaney, yeah, that's that Martin Delaney, and we read Blake together. Those of you not in Nubia, we read Blake, y'all, and we did chapter by chapter, week by week. What a brilliant discussion, because people say, well, y'all talking now in 2022, all this old Africa stuff. They weren't talking about it. They weren't thinking about it back then. then stop watching the woman king for your history. The politics of representation. No, no. Martin Delaney was there. Watch this. It says, during his exploratory mission to the Niger Valley, or the Niger Valley, how you want to pronounce it, made one year before the Clotilda smuggling venture occurred, Martin Delaney secured land for the repatriation of Black Americans on African soil. On October 25th, 1859. October 25th, 1859? When did that boat come to? 1859! King Dasumu of Lagos gave Delaney a deed to land in Okaipo. Subsequently, Delaney traveled to Abiokuta, where the Alake, or king, Okukenu, Bashorun, Sumoye, and numerous Balogoons, also known as warlords, that's what she's saying, signed and sealed a document granting Black Americans the right to settle in Abiokuta among the Egba Yoruba peoples and instructing them to use their education, intelligence, and knowledge of the arts and sciences to improve Abiokuta. Delaney was able to secure West African lands for Black Americans at a time of great upheaval, mm, when powerful warlords were confiscating valuable productive lands for themselves. I will go on, but I'm going to pause there. Maybe we'll get Natalie to come in and we can continue this conversation in a different way as we, as we work through the course, which I'm coming to in a second. Because you can't understand what's going on that's being represented in the woman king without understanding there's conflicts all over the place and a lot of it is class conflict the elites are the ones fighting with each other the poor people suffering the poor are suffering unless you are affiliated with a group with an empire with a kingdom this is what uh um kasula is telling us in barracoon telling zornil hurston and through her us 
This is my team. This is my team. The ruler of my place came in contact with this other guy, said, get down and lay down. He said, I'm not getting down. So they cut his head off and keep it moving. Wow. And then took us. Right. This is all conflict. What uh, what Natalie is, Robeson is saying is some of this stuff, Africans in the diaspora, like Delaney, come in there saying, we, we trying to return. And the people offering them ability to return are also warring against other people. So Delaney's in the middle of conflicts that he doesn't have any experience with of African born in what is now West Virginia, raised in now Pittsburgh, travels around friends with Frederick Douglass, all this, you know, goes to Africa, comes back. His friend Robert Campbell, the Jamaican, is there with him while they're in Africa. They're signing treaties back and forth, comes back here, fights in the Civil War, becomes the first black major in the Civil War, spends the rest of his life teaching and involved in politics and working, buried now in Ohio. Larry Crow knows all this history better than anybody I know because we go to that that space every May Memorial Day. We'll be going back in 2023, inshallah. And I hope a lot of folks join us there. You know, Larry's putting it together now as we speak. But I'm going through all that to say that Delaney is represented at the National Gallery of Art and Smithsonian African American Museum and everywhere else. He is represented through the lens of his Civil War service. What just happened? All that people, places, and ideas, and you narrated out him in a uniform. Why? Because that's what's important to you, and that's what you want to make important to us. No, that's your rating, but I want to go see the movie for myself. Oh, Delaney is, man. And then you look around and say, okay, now why did you make the choices you made? You still want us to swear allegiance to this, right? So now let's tie it to what's going on in Haiti right now. These sisters, you know, you talk to some people, you read some literature, you listen, you know, and a lot of Haitian stories. Now we know Dahomey was well represented in Haiti in terms of the enslaved who ended up in that enslavement social structure well the speculation is that some of those who were enslaved the homians who were captured and and, and and taken to what becomes haiti and dominican republic among them were some of those agoji some of those women warriors and remember we talked a lot of last week about uh john thornton's warfare in atlantic africa 1500 to 1800 this would have been a period uh and then into the 1850s where you see 60s where uh, Dahomey is ascendant and then ruling at the point of maybe having maybe five or six thousand Agoji. So, of course, the odds are they're going to be some of them caught up in this as captives. You see that glance that in the woman king, right? Except they only focus on when they're on their wagon and they're all being they've been captured now and they're going to get taken to Wida and sold off. And then one rolls off and then you somebody else you know, kills themselves or whatever. Okay, what about the other ones that didn't that were still on the, where they end up? Well, you know, I've read and heard some accounts where the Haitians said they, they trained Jean-Jacques Dessalines to fight. Huh? Or they trained the, the Haitian Revolution? Some of that was them. You say, okay. Now, Thornton doesn't name it by name, but he does talk about those Africans who were fighting each other in Africa, and once they all got caught and sent to the United States, or so that not the United States, no, damn near nobody came directly here. The Caribbean, Latin America, Central America, they started trading their secrets on how they fought each other, and they put that together to fight these Europeans. Warfare in Atlantic Africa, 1500 to 1800. Hmm. So it makes perfect sense. Now, can you make a woman king too? What happened when they got to the Haitian Revolution? They ain't ready for that. Hollywood not ready for that. Y'all gonna make that movie in Nubia. And I'm all here for it. I'm saying it should be made here. And then once people are they making them choices, then you're gonna see it in, in Hollywood. Bala Davis is not gonna play that role 20 years ago, 30 years ago. 50 years ago, she'd have been, nah, she's too dark, but maybe she'd have been, you know, Diane Carroll. 
But now you don't play Julia no more. You can get a sword. Now, of course, you're cutting black heads, which is probably as far as you can go. And you can stick a couple of white men in there to kill them. Why? Because black people don't want to see black on black heads. I want to see you cut a whole white man's slave owner. In fact, I want an Afro fantasy where you just destroy all the white people and have your own place that you rule, which is the source in 1966. And now in one, now about to be two, now about to be more movies of the Dora Milaje. See, so far, in terms of the politics of representation, the only place where you can kill white people outright and ulalate, you can do it in Afrofuturism. In other words, nowhere that happened. Unless you make independent movies, unless you highly intrigued, where you can make Sankofa and handle your business. But the Dora Milaje are the Agoji. That's not speculation. That's been written about a million times. So if you want to look at what the woman king looked like if you was free free, that would be Wakanda. Wakanda forever. Right. So if you want to watch what the woman king would look like, if you got to make your own choices, you got to go to Fantasyland, and that will be November the 1st, called Black Panther 2, Wakanda forever. And even on the on the promotional materials, I'm walking out 2 o'clock in the morning after watching there. I went to the midnight show because ain't nobody in there. Ain't nobody going to bother me. I got my hoodie on. And so, you know, y'all don't know me from nobody, which is the way I love it. So I'm sitting there and I came out. And, you know, I'm looking at the promotional for Black Panther 2. And it's all sisters except for Winston Duke. And he's on the corner. I said, I see where it's going. Y'all about to make all the money. Why? <laughs> because, you know, just like in voting, the number one demographic for the Democratic Party in the United States and this duopoly we call American democracy is voters are black women. Number two is black men and not too far behind. But I'm saying these sisters coming to see this and I'm coming too. So, but that's Afrofuturism. Now, Afropresentism, Afro-memory, Afrofuturism, but here's where it gets very interesting. Continues to get interesting. So if those sisters end up in Haiti, Let's spend a few minutes before we, as we kind of begin to, to think about how this, how these implications work. Let's look at these charts as it relates to what's going on in Haiti today. Some of those Dahomeans end up in Haiti, many of them. In fact, Vaudon is at its center. Dahomey, Benin, of course, all this is spillover. When you see Dijman Hansu, it's a wonderful little documentary on Vaudon. He said, my name means born in the voodoo shrine. Digimon Hansu, the actor. You know, so you see in another military form, I just think of a, of a movie he was military in, which is, uh, of course, um, boom, 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 Gladiator. Russell Crowe, all about war. War is not the answer. I don't care whether it's Gladiator or Woman King, but why are you always fighting all the time? It's counterintuitive. You meet the man say war and gender. He's saying it's, it's not it's not natural to take people's lives. So were you pressed into this? Were there some people who forced you into this? It's usually coercive, whether it's internal or external. But anyway, Digimon Hansu, who is also in Black Adam. Yeah, y'all saw Shazam. If you know the comic books, you know he got to be in Black Adam. Why? Because he one of the wizards that gave Shazam the power, because you got to say Shazam, and Black Adam says Shazam. They got the same lightning bolt. I'm looking at this like, where are you going with this? And I love how, you know, they got it, you know, in D.C., they, D.C. is good for making up countries. They're not like Marvel. They don't like to put the names, like, oh, Wakanda's made up for sure. But I mean, you know, Kandahar, or, or these play where Black Adam is from, all that, it's a made up place, like Metropolis, you know, like Gotham, you know, they make up. They don't say New York. They don't say San Francisco. They don't say, you know, but for the most part. But 
In this one, when you see Black Adam's origin story, you read the comic books, you know, but you also know it's the same seven wizards that gave Billy Bats and his power in Shazam. And eventually Shazam gonna fight Black Adam. I'm watching the movie like, look at The Rock getting ready to make all this money. How many Shazam movies you gonna make? And you got the Justice Society in here with no backstory. That means Justice League. Oh, and you figuring out a way to try to get Superman back. Look at this boy making this money. But anyway, my point is this. In Shazam and in Black Adam, you see Digimon Hansu as one of the wizards. And then and they speak in this power into The Rock like they speak it into the guy that plays Shazam, they are naming Kemetic Kemetic Neturu. You have the wisdom of Jehudi. May you have the strength of Heru. Okay, just funny. Just not made up. What are you doing, Dwayne? See, but see, you in here with us. If you were newbie, you taking Dr. Betty's class, you immediately picked up. Ah. Now, is that a victory for us? I'm not thinking about victories and losses in Hollywood. It's Hollywood. They're trying to get your money. However, the more we push, the more the thing that wants to maintain the hierarchy has to absorb enough of it to be able to remain in the hierarchy. So we keep doing what we're doing. And like, like Professor Hunter said, you put your head down, do your work, whoever come, come. The world begins to move towards you. Why? Because the world wants to stay in the formation it's in. But here's the irony of that. In trying to stay in the formation, they are continuing to open to the thing that's going to destroy the formation. Oh, anyway, so these Dahomeans end up in Haiti with the Congo people, with some Yoruba people, with some other people who come in because we see it in all in the ways of knowing of Vodun, of Haitian culture, all that in a social structure that's trying to kill them all. Well. If Jean-Jacques Dessalines was one of those Africans who learned some combat technique as a child and growing up from these Dahomeans, which may have included some of the Agoji, the anniversary of his assassination, his murder in 1806, just passed. That was last Wednesday. Well, we know that last Wednesday was also the day that the uh, United States representative to the United Nations, a sister, Linda Thompson, Linda Thomas Greenfield, made a plea to the UN for two things. Number one, to grant some uh, authority, the first thing, to, to well, to sanction, to sanction these gangs, as they're saying, led by a cat named Jimmy uh, Cherizier, who they nicknamed Barbecue, who is supposed to somehow be the leader of this D9 group of gangs in Haiti and Port-au-Prince, who are holding hostage the fuel depot, the fuel depot at a place called Deru, um, Veru, Veru gas terminal on the coast, Port-au-Prince, central Port-au-Prince, the big city, the hub in Haiti. These gangs got it hostage. At least that's the narrative if you're reading the representations of the Western media, CNN, New York Times, you can't trust none of that stuff, but who can you trust? Maybe nobody. But the key is, going back to Clyde Taylor, people, things, and ideas, things that are going on, ideas, people, movement. Between them and us is the representers. So what source can I trust? You can't trust no source completely, including people, because people are starving. There's going to be a cholera, another cholera outbreak. They can't get drinking water. The people in Haiti are in the streets. I saw a picture of a cat on a horse dressed like Jean-Jacques Desalines in the street last week. Now, the people scared of the gangs? Hell yeah. There's violence going on. There's torture. There's rape. There's all kinds of reports coming out of Haiti. Are the people scared of Henri, the prime minister the United States put in, Ariel Henri? 
Hell yeah, because they want him gone. Guess who else want him gone? Barbecue and the gangs, the D9. Not the Divine Nine. The D9. But if they say Divine Nine in Haiti, I guess they're talking about Dambala and Yemiya. I guess they're talking about Ogun. Yeah, they're definitely talking about Ogun because they, they strapped, y'all. But they want Henri gone. The dude barbecue giving press conference saying, what do y'all want? Why y'all got this thing hostage? Why y'all got Veru gas terminal hostage? 80% of Haiti's fuel comes out of that gas. They say, These gangs got us tortured. So if you turn on CNN, you read the New York Times, and the Washington Post have printed like nine op-eds in the last couple of years. And in the last few, they've done week after week, talking about got to go into Haiti to save them. Rescue mission, rescue mission. Ain't no damn rescue mission. It's an invasion. And they getting ready to invade Haiti. Let's talk. Why these gangs got the gas hostage? Ariel Henry, remember they assassinated uh, Moise. We talked about that extensively too. Moise with the U.S. Moise was going to cut, was going to raise the gas prices. The people said, damn, it's already too expensive. Henri, who was installed, absolutely installed by the United States, vetted here. They got their gang, the United States gang, it's called the core group. We talked about that too. The United States, France, Canada. They got the UN on board, the Organization of American States. Well, a lot of the UN. OAS is the puppet organization for the hemisphere. The United States runs right here down the street in Washington, D.C. So Ariel Henry, who is here, was here, is vetted and Henri announces we're cutting all subsidies for fuel. So now the gas price is getting ready to go through the roof, and the poor people are like, hell, the gangs. John Henry Clark saying some stories, it ain't no good guys, but they are organized enough to do what? To stop them from coming to get any more fuel. There will be no fuel. So now the people suffering. What are the people saying? Hell, we were suffering before. Now this rape got to stop and all this violence, these damn gangs, we scared of y'all. We can't leave our houses. At the same time, Henri not going to save us. And what you doing, Henri? We want you to out. Guess what the gangs and the people agree on? Henri got to go. And all of you stooges who are with the United States. So what does the United States do? Last week, the anniversary of Desaline assassination, which in the representation of the history of Haiti, if you listen to the social structure, you know, why is Haiti in such trouble? Because it's just black people, they violent. They violent as hell. They cannibals and they got voodoo and uh, all that old BS. They've been making that same lie a million times, whether it be Roger Moore, Live and Let Die, James Bond, where they got the voodoo guy, Mr. Big, played by Yafat Kato, whether you come up to the serpent and the rainbow, whether you come, if you see up, when you go to Marvel Comics, at least the old version of Brother Voodoo, he's gotten a lot better now, because again, people don't read that BS no more. Certainly if you're Haitian, certainly if you know anything else, you're not going to read that stuff anymore. So, but what happens is, they are they have now ginned up, to quote Ty Taylor, Clyde Taylor again, the representation machine. It's the media. They drum beat for invasion is now louder and louder. And last week, you get Ariel Henry, the propped up stooge from the United States, calling for United States, or no, I'm sorry, foreign intervention. What the hell does that mean? So the UN Security Council meets and they send the sister. Man, still got the bitter taste of that son of Jamaica shaking that vial of chalk before they sent your children to die in Iraq. Call him pal. To do the well now, it's Linda Thompson, uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield calling for military invention. Number one, cut off the money to barbecue. He got money, he got foreign bank accounts. Cut it off. Why? We got to get at that fuel. Okay. Get it to fuel. When you get to fuel, you're going to keep the prices low. You're going to do some more. Oh, no, 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 no. We just want the people like Henri 
And they got another group that met at a hotel called a Man Montana Hotel in, in Haiti, the Montana Group. These people with the U.S. too. Here's something Henri, the current prime minister, this installed one, and the Montana Group leader has in common. They were both participants in the coup that led to deposing Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 2004. Guess who's sitting behind that? Y'all friends. And all of his friends, you know, Bill Clinton and them, when they went in there in the 90s, and then 2000, by 2004, it's George W. Bush and his friends. You know, Dick Cheney, who's kind of running the country. <laughs> you know, Dick Cheney, whose daughter y'all are now caping for, because she recognizes that the collapse of the United States government would mean the collapse of her criminal enterprise. She's not going against Trump. Because she's all of a sudden for humanity, she's trying to get her friends and her daddy's friends and her daddy's friends' friends to keep making that money. So y'all better stop caping for her, my vice president's friend. But then from, from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush, Haiti been getting invaded. And in 2004, the United States propped up the invasion to get rid of Aristide and the cats that was in part of it are now back in power. And they met last week with the United States bag man for the hemisphere. Their bag man for the hemisphere was in, he's the State Department lead guy for the Western Hemisphere, was down there meet with them in Port-au-Prince. They lining up probably the fifth invasion in the last hundred years in Haiti, and they gonna do it. Because remember the last time they had a quote-unquote stabilizing force, 2004 to around 2017. It was the UN, that's when you had the cholera outbreak. You talk about rape, you talk about violence. You saw that down there then. 13 years the UN was down there. This Montana group, these business leaders, so to speak, this whole, you know, Brian Nichols is the bag man for the United States. He's the lead uh, person from the State Department dealing with the Western Hemisphere. He down there lining it up. What we gonna do? Well, the first thing we gotta do is get them gangs away from the gas. Because the people in the streets, the people are like, yeah, we need the gas. And it's okay, yeah, well then we, we trying to help you. We're gonna intervene. No, 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 hold on. What we need more than the gas, because we've been suffering. Because if you unblock the gas and still double or triple the price, that ain't helping us. What we need is on Regon and the Montana Group gone. And what we need is for you not to invade United States. So United States has to have some cover. And they got some cover, y'all. They got some, they got some cover. They got a they got a law they passed. This is your Congress. They got a law they passed that they haven't tried out yet. Haiti gonna be the test case called the Global Fragility Act. The Global Fragility Act authorizes the United States to invade, I'm sorry, to intervene. That's their favorite word, intervention, humanitarian intervention. No, it's an invasion. They will invade to help governments that are disintegrating or have disintegrated. What? Global fragility. Now, you know, that's what they've been trying for a long time. This is before they had the law. They've been trying forever to get in Venezuela. Right, they had that clown Juan Guaido who every time he show up in public, somebody slaps him, babies, old people, people come out the cemetery, slaps you at him, he got his little ears flopping in the wind. He's like a comic relief. In fact, today's uh, Financial Times, you know, they haven't invaded Venezuela and the hillbillies seem to think that uh, that uh, Hugo Chavez is still alive. But guess what? They're getting ready to stop with Venezuela. Why? Because Russia... And OPEC, OPEC Plus playing the oil game with the United States. 
And so here are the headlines the last few days. I'm going to read you this little article, a part of it called Venezuela Interim Government Faces Acts. And now even the money paper, the FT, got interim government in quotes. Why? Because they keep trying to say that Juan Guaido represents the legitimate government of Venezuela. Anybody vote for Juan Guaido? Nicolas Maduro, problems notwithstanding, the elected guy. Juan Guaido is the U.S. guy. He always here in D.C. at hotels and hanging out. Meetings. Then they send him back down there to call himself the legitimate person, and they beat his behind in public restaurants. He running for people in the street, and he can't. But they've at least up until now been willing to keep trying to prop him up a little bit. Watch this. Venezuela's opposition parties are discussing a plan. This will be the Venezuelan, Venezuelan version of the Montana group in Haiti. These some people still on the Western payroll. Venezuela's opposition parties are discussing a plan to wind up their, quote, interim government, end quote, and abandon Juan Guaido's claim to be the country's legitimate leader. Belated recognition that the U.S.-sponsored attempt to unseat Pre President Nicolas Maduro has failed after nearly four years. The end of Guaido's interim government would close the chapter on one of the world's most bizarre diplomatic experiments. A coalition of more than 50 mainly Western, mainly Western, probably all but two uh, nations, established formal relations with a shadow opposition regime and administration to try to force regime change in Caracas after allegations that Maduro had rigged his re-election in 2018. Here's the money paragraph, paragraph three. It could also, could, don't you love it? It could also pave the way for the United States to ease oil sanctions on the Maduro government, opening an alternative source of supply for Western nations boycotting Russian crude due to its war in Ukraine. Okay. So what happened in Venezuela? All of a sudden, Maduro is better. Also, we want Guaido kill somebody. No, we need the oil, bruh. And we can't swap you out. So therefore, we just going to abandon you finally and just talk to Maduro. Can we get some gas, bro? Can we get some gas? Because the Russians is killing us. By the way, Linda Thompson, Linda Greenfield Thomas last week, uh, last Wednesday talking about we want the UN to put sanctions on barbecue so we can get out that gas because the elite need the gas. The poor can go to hell. The poor in the streets talking about, yeah, we don't like the gang stuff either, but we don't like this dude even more. So therefore, we want you out that's the first resolution. The second revolution, the resolution she fomented. They got, they got a vote on that. Yes, a yes, a thumbs up on that. The second one was still being debated. We want to invade. Who is the co-author of these? Breaks my heart. Mexico. What is Anlo doing? What is Lopez Obrador doing? Why are the Mexicans co-sponsoring it with the United States? Well, to do that, you got to back out another valence and say, why is Mexico? Well, guess what? When a lot of those Haitians are fleeing Haiti because of the chaos that the external forces have, because what they're really fighting, Edwidge Dondekat wrote about this in the New Yorker a couple of days ago. What they're really fighting, Edwidge Dondekat, by the way, we know the writer, the Haitian writer, sister, she lays it out very beautifully. But what she says is what they're really fighting is apartheid, economic and social apartheid. Haiti been being punished since they broke away and made themselves free. And a lot of the external forces are fomenting the internal violence. A rough parallel to what's going on during the enslavement of Africans in West Africa. Different, but similar enough to make the comparison. And Edwige Donda kind of said, you know, she said, I'm talking to people in Haiti. I was last there in 220, last home in 2018. Haven't been able to go back. But every time I'm talking to people, whether they be on the island or in the Haitian diaspora, which is huge, they're saying, you know, this is external foment. It's being fomented ex externally. Of course it is. Of course it is. Here in the United States, we talking about Kanye. We talking about the NBA season then started. We talking about football. We need to be talking to each other about Haiti. 
and Ethiopia and Brazil and all these other places. The global majority that Karen Hunter has put at the center of our consciousness every day, day after day. And why is this important? And how is this going to tie to the course we're doing? I'm coming to that in a second. Just want to make sure we're thinking about Haiti right now because that wasn't the only meeting they had. The bag men went down there because they're trying to prop up a new regime and they telling, probably telling Henri, bro, you got to go. We'll put somebody, swap somebody else in from this crew here, the Montana group, where they call it the opposition in the Western press, politics of representation. They ain't the opposition. All these cats on the same team. Henri, we tried it, but bruh, you, you know, these people want your head. Now, we can get barbecue money froze. We, we trying to, but these people in the streets now, it ain't about barbecue, it's about us, and we got to get out the headlines, bruh. But guess what? While they doing that, oh, by the way, after they approved that, they sent a Coast Guard ship the biggest one in the Coast Guard fleet to the waters just off Port-au-Prince under the auspices of the military. No, 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 I'm sorry. Not the auspices of the military. That Coast Guard ship is under control of the Department of Homeland Security. Ain't no lie. Because Haiti as a, as a colony of the United States, as a territory of the United States, is part of the United States Homeland Security. Wait, no. I'm sorry. I was thinking about Puerto Rico and Guam, Virgin Islands. no. It's another country. How the hell is this Homeland Security? No, because they probably going, if they can get barbecue, they're going to arrest and put them on that boat. And they got the rapid deployment joints on the boat that they can get off the tanks, you know, and, and a part of the uh, the Global Fragility Act that I talked about is also, also an authorization that is tied to what they call small front footprint operations. That's black ops. That's the hit squads. Not to say that that ain't who took out uh, Moise before. The hit squads, the black ops joined. Because remember, when they arrested those cats, they were from Haiti. Now, the other meeting they had last week, or actually a couple of weeks before this, the president of the Dominican Republic came in town. Um, Abinader. Luis Abinader. Abinader, the president of the uh, Dominican Republic, rich businessman, I think he came into power like 2020. He was in D.C., met with Nancy Pelosi. Then he met with United States aid. That would be Samantha Power. Remember, she used to be a UN representative. And some kind of way he's sitting up with Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States of America. Shortly thereafter, the Dominican Republic, with military assistance from the United States, tightened up closing off the border with Haiti. They setting it up. I know Kamala Harris is of African descent. I know her father's Jamaican. Her mom from India. It's a great story. I mean, the politics of representation. Kamala Harris is no different than Barack Obama. There are the president, the vice president of the United States of America, not the vice president, president of black people, not governance, social structure. So you can cheer and be nice. It's nice to have black people, but let's be very clear. The president of the Dominican Republic, then DR, met with her, met with Pelosi, met with Sam Power, now went back. They tightened up the border. Why? Now they got the Coast Guard ship out over uh, DHS on the on the anniversary of Desilene assassination, which people celebrate, or at least commemorate, not celebrate, in Haiti. You get the UN to sign off on your thing, but guess why they couldn't get the second resolution? Two countries saying, ah, no, I ain't going for invasion. Y'all already know Russia and China. But see, they're trying to checkmate Russia or now because in the EU, that natural gas is full. They, well, you know, I won't get too deep into that, but I'm going to talk about the EU another time. But over here in this hemisphere, you know, the United States is like, okay, we're going to finally kind of loosen up on Venezuela invasions because Juan Guaido can't get it done and we need access to that 
uh, to that oil. So therefore, you know, because Russia has got us choked off. Well, Russia, that same Russia and that same China were in the United uh, Nations last week saying, oh, we know about the second, y'all ain't going to invade. But the reason, of course, Mexico is on, I think, include the fact that a lot of Haitians who have been forced out of Haiti are in Mexico. The southern border of Mexico, just like they were in Brazil before. And all that talk with the white nationalist governor of Texas, Abbott, the one in Florida, that chin fool, that puffer fish. DeSantis, who there's a long piece in the FT today about him calling him Trump with a brain. You know, that's how they like to talk about him. You know, all that stuff about illegal immigrants. Remember some Venezuelans? Those were Venezuelans he took from Texas and sent to Massachusetts after stopping in Florida long enough to touch down and then get back up in the air. Well, a lot of them were Haitians. Remember, that was uh, Title 42 where uh, uh, um, um, Trump, then Biden, no more Haitians coming in. Title 42, but those Haitians were in Mexico in the first place because they were fleeing what was going on in Haiti. They end up in Mexico, which is why I think must be a reason that Lopez Obrador is co-sponsoring these uh, resolutions at the UN, which still sticks in my throat because he's supposed to be a leftist. In some stories, it ain't no good guys, but all of this has been moved by pushing and pulling. So anyway, we need to pay very close attention because they're getting ready to invade Haiti. And now we end with how all this makes sense in the context of the class so let me pause go back to where we started and come forward and this will be very brief we started our point of entry was really talking about the politics of representation whether it be Soledad O'Brien talking to you, Professor Hunter, about why and how they made the, uh, the, 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 the film now on Rosa Parks whether it be Everything from The Rock and Black Adam to The Woman King. Clyde Taylor will tell us this is about the politics of representation. And representation is all about what he calls the art culture complex, what we can think of as the social structure that has a seated interest in managing how we think about moving through the world. But that is no that is the case for all governments. That's the case for all structures. But then those structures are not the people. The people can bang on them and push on them. And by the way, if you haven't voted already, if there's early voting in Georgia, Maryland starts this week, you know, get out there and do that if you're in the United States. If you're in some of these other places watching or in, in the room from Burkina Faso or Nigeria or Brazil or Haiti or DR or wherever, England, where we see, of course, uh, as we said, you know, in fact, this, I, I love this front page of today's Financial Times, right? Because who do they have? Uh, could the Tory turmoil get even worse? You better ask. Uh, you better ask Aza Adesoje. Adesoje was the one who was talking. To, I think when we had opened the conversation about what to do. In fact, Adesoje, remember in office hours you were saying, you know, maybe we should repatriate Kasula. And then one of his relatives comes in and says, yeah, you know, we've talked to folks, we've had conversations, but he, his family is here. He would like to be where his parents are, but he can't, you know, where they are. Right. This is a governance conversation. That's how we're working it out, which brings me to where we're going. So we started with the politics of representation. We then took it through an analysis or at least not an analysis, kind of gesture toward how the woman king in terms of people, places and ideas, things that actually happen in West Africa are very different than how they're going to be represented by the old culture complex and how our work is governance work, uh, grand marinage work, not petite marinage work. Petite marinage work is is often influenced by grand marinage work. So the documentaries get quote unquote better. So the uh, the series get a little bit more representative. Why? Because the social structure realize you can't keep running that stuff out because the people ain't watching. We rate Black Adam at 44. The people say 90%. Oh shit. The Rock laughing like, I know the people. I know you too. 
I'm standing in both worlds and I'm about to make all the money. Well, here we are in Nubia. Grand Marinage, governance formation. Here we are with a front porch where we invite in everybody who want to click the YouTube and see. Come on in. And if you don't come on in, we still influencing. Because the influence ain't Greg Carr, it ain't Karen Hunter. The influence is us having conversation with us. And now we have the space to launch this next dimension in the work, which is a formal space where we talk about this intro course. The in the interest I want to read from Financial Times weekend today. This gives us a very different and very intentional frame. This is Africana, not Afro-US, not Afro-Haitian, not Afro-African-African, no, Africana. Africana is Africa when and wherever you find it. It overflows all those boundaries, those artificial lines. This is not introduction. This is not going to be an introduction to African-US course. No, no. We now walk the walk. I'm glad we are launching. And by the way, logistically, as I said last week and Monday, uh, last Monday, this Monday coming up in the wake of Sunyata Amin, in the wake of Mario Beatty, in the wake of all of the formations we have, all of the work that we're doing, all the work we're convening, all the stuff that's connected, the hub, we're keeping up with global events, everything that's going on on Monday night. This Monday, we will go through the, the course, the course framework, the syllabus. Syllabi are different, are a tricky example. Because syllabi are usually about representations. Here are all the stuff out there that everybody went to school to study. Now I got a PhD, which means I'm supposed to know more about this than everybody. And then I write a script for what we should study. Okay. My contribution is because since I do all the time reading, thinking, watching, listening, observing. That's my contribution, but it's not a syllabus like boom, 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 boom. Read this, do this, read this, do this, read this, do this. Because there are issues of assessment. There are issues of uh, rubrics. There are issues. But here's where the course differs. We doing a course now that is truly grounded in our formation. And I started, I piloted some of this in the course we've been developing. We've been, I've been teaching for years at Howard, the Introduction to African States course, which is an Introduction to African States course. I'm glad I had a chance to do this because I restructured that course to anchor uh, as, as kind of a petite marinage to our grand marinage. I restructured it. So it's a two-part thing now. We just finished part one in our course, which means it's a good time to launch this. So Monday night, we're going to go through the framework. Then the following Monday, a week from this coming Monday, we start. The first hour of our two-hour office hours block will be the course. The Part one, we go through the conceptual categories one by one. In the course I'm teaching at Howard, we did a week apiece. Here, I'm mapping it out thinking maybe we'll do two weeks apiece, and, but it will be driven by how we interact together because the process will emerge naturally. We are making the course. Every, and that's so the first part. The first part of the course was I say first, I won't say first number of weeks. The first part, conceptual categories. 
social structure, who are we to each other? Governance structure, who are, uh, I'm sorry, social structure, who are we to other people, who are Africans to other people? Governance structure, who are we to each other? Science, um, ways of knowing, what ways of understanding reality in each other have we developed over the course of time? Adjusted, critique, this kind of thing, religion, philosophy, those names are too small, ways of knowing. Fourth category, science and technology, what way of acting on our material environment have we created or adapted to serve our purposes? Then whoever the we is, depending on where we are in time and space. The, the uh, fifth category, cultural meaning making at different points have we made texts and practices to mark our time and and, and around the sun and in the, the context that we've created Fifth, sixth rather movement and memory as we go through time and space how do we mark and remember these moments a cat riding on a horse in 2022 last week in downtown Port-au-Prince as they're protesting to get rid of this propped up prime minister and all the stooges from the United States and he dressed like Jean-Jacques Dessalines movement and memory how do they remember Dessalines so part one will be those categories. But here's where it gets interesting. We take the dialogue that we have and everyone in there does two things. Contribute to the dialogue. So there's going to be some anchor readings. We'll go through those Monday. They kind of start the conversation and, and give us some, some people, places, ideas, facts to, to throw in. And then we bring in everything else, the things we know, the things we experience, whether it be our families, our communities, our studies, where we've been around the world. And because it is Africana global, we are literally making this class week by week. And as we make the class, we then take what we've done collectively and go into the spaces we are individually and transform them. That's how a class should work. The class isn't about licensure, in other words. Credit, although that may come down to pay. We'll see. This class isn't about assessments, taking a test to see what we've learned. No, this class is about coming in, having a conversation and saying, we got people here in West Africa right now. And as we're having this conversation, this is a prompt for them to go ask some people that are contribute something they know. And we've already seen it in operation as we go Monday through Monday through Monday through Monday. And that conversation then finds its way back in to help not only transform the courses we're having it, we're making this role by walking it to borrow from Paulo Freire. We are also taking that and people ask me all the time. In fact, uh, Bishop, I owe you a call, Bishop Kamathi and the um, Shrine of the Black Madonna and all of the ministers who it through the shrine are here every week. Imagine that the whole shrine of the Black Madonna, the ministers in this space with us all together, part of us. Well, guess what? No way. No way we can do what you do. But here's what we can do. In constant dialogue, you contribute to this by saying this has been our experiences. This is how we think about ways of knowing. This is how uh, uh, Bishop Clegg dealt with it. This is how we deal with it in Houston. This is how we deal with it in South Carolina or Atlanta. This is how we deal with it in, in Detroit. This is how we deal with it in West Africa. And then somebody else comes in and say, you know, I'm a Vodun practitioner. I'm a Mambo. This is how we would think. about. You know what? I know that story about the Agoji coming in. Man. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. How much did y'all pay for a class like that? I mean, you know, at this point, Howard is 50 stacks a year. At this point, Harvard is very, no, 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 no. This is this description of Nubia narrative. That's it. That's it. Well, do you get class credit? See, there you go driving it with the social structure question. The question is, did you take the conversation we had last week and build your own curriculum? Because all this is being recorded and all of it's being driven by stuff as we're gathering our archive that you then say, I need an after school program. What do you suggest? What do you mean? What do you suggest? We're building it together. 
You take this now and make the slight adjustment in the existing after school program. This this helps us in Philadelphia Freedom School. God knows, because I take all the stuff back. We're going into that conversation. This helps in the conversations K-12 we're having. This helps at your university course where you come and say, you should add this reading. And by the way, this is the insight I got, not just from what we read and discussed, but from somebody who has this direct experience. Oh my gosh, it's a different, this is governance. This is a course of governance that has the intended consequences, which should be, which is to obliterate the hierarchy. We obliterate the hierarchy. Everybody brings their expertise. And those of us who have more expertise in one area other than the other, it ain't over somebody. It's contributing to this larger conversation. And as we do that, our framework enables the ability to do research, to have organizational formations come out of that. Because guess what? These young people have homework now. What's the homework in the course? Well, you got to read the stuff for a week and we have conversation. Homework for young people is to pursue some of these things that have been discussed and link it. Now go talk to all the elders in your family. Bring that in. We've been talking about that in office hours for quite some time. So Monday night then, as we envelop in the class week by week, the texts are not just the assignments. The, those are going to change too. Every time we do, it's going to be a different conversation. Because guess what? The clearinghouse we are assembled as people contribute you talk about a bibliography, that's a master bibliography. It ain't just books, it ain't just articles. It's 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 clips that have been recorded. It's family recordings. Now we got an archive and the narrative is course shaping. The art, in other words, this course is about sharing and collective. Now let me finally end with this, in this context. Because guess what? This is where the world is going. Let me take about five more minutes, we'll be done. There was an article in today's Financial Times I thought was fascinating. Uh, let me see if I can find it quickly because as I was reading it, I was saying, do you people just like get in my head and then y'all put stuff out on the day when you know I'm going to talk about something? Let me see. Maybe, uh, let me see. It's not house and home. Maybe life and arts. Ah, yes. Life and arts section. This is Rana Foruhar. Rana Foruhar. R-A-N-A-F-O-R-O-O-H-A-R. Rana Foruhar. After decades of free trade promising prosperity for all, nations are retreating behind borders. That's what's going on now. The hillbilly horde in the United States, the white nativists who are saying, United States, and by the way, I didn't talk about it. I mentioned it last week, but and I, 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 maybe I'll go, maybe we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more on Monday. Uh, the, the, the lawsuit I mentioned last week, the Didra Farmer Pellman and the Restitution Study Group uh, tried to sue the Smithsonian, tell them not to send back 29 of the 39 Benin bronzes they have valued around $200 million because they said that those Benin bronzes were made out of metal that uh, was, some of those were made out of metal that was melted down from the uh, the ingots, I-N-G-O-T-S, that were traded uh, by the Portuguese to purchase black bodies. And so what they're saying is you shouldn't do, yes, and that's nativism, man. That's that, that's that blackface nativism. It could be called anything, foundational Black Americans, BA1, ADOS. Black nativism is a form of nativism. Underneath it is pain. Underneath it is suffering. Underneath it is a righteous cause that we must advance. But when you de-link your cause between your situation as a person of African descent or as a person who has been oppressed in a hierarchy from other people around the world, who are in oppressive regimes that are connected to each other. Again, the United States coordinating as they get ready to invade Haiti. 
they talking to the EU and they say, okay, now we getting ready to uh, go ahead and recognize Juan, uh, get rid of Juan Guaido and recognize Maduro because we need this stuff. Don't you think they sitting over there? They already mad at uh, uh, Macron in the United States because Macron has started to go rogue. He having meetings with the EU and the Russians and he he trying to get together. Macron is like, but well, we can't wait on y'all. And then UK, they blowing up now because now they got to worry about it because the thing they tried to launch in the UK the United States is the same game plan the white nationals have. If they get back in power, if they take the House of Representatives and the Senate and then get the presidency, they want the same austerity measures that, that Liz Trust put Liz Trust out. Except here, they can kind of float it because they can print money and they got a bigger economy. The U.S. had the same, it's the same plan that, uh, uh, that, that that signing pen Trump had. It's the same plan George W. Bush had. In other words, give all the money to the elites and the devil take the hindmost. It got trust in trouble because the U.K. economy not big enough to take that hit and the people were revolting but anyway my point is this they're coordinating at the top we need to coordinate at the bottom so that there is no top and bottom we can overflow those boundaries but in overflowing those boundaries what this course will allow allows us to do is do that work without having to dismantle a hierarchy we're building it literally together i hate to use the metaphor but i will from the ground up the ground is us that's where the people are so anyway in this article my guide to a globalizing world what rana forhar finally recognizes is that that's how the world is going. Let me read to you very quickly, just quickly. She says, I'll never forget an interview I did years ago with the late Richard Trumka. Some of y'all union people know Trumka. The then president of the AFL-CIO, America's largest labor union. Trumka, a tough-talking former Pennsylvania coal miner turned lawyer, told me about a conversation he had had in the 1990s with a Clinton administration official about the fallout of NAFTA. Remember that? Which had been ratified in 1993 and the potential impact of China coming into the global trading system. By the way, if y'all been following what's going on in China, Xi Jinping, they talking about a people's economy, got these people scared as hell. Why, you getting ready to nationalize some more shit right here? Ho, ho, ho. Pay attention to China. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Continuing, he says, Trumka was concerned about a sudden flood of cheap labor into the global marketplace and the effect it would have on American workers' incomes and lives. See, that's the nativism. The, 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 the wages go down other places they got cheap labor it's going to affect us here the union's job is to keep those things propped up but let me tell you this is what the labor leader told this writer watch this quote i told the official that the deals would kill us and he agreed end quote but the official said that after a while quote wages would start to go up again and things would even out around the world end quote when trumka asked him how long this process of leveling out might take he answered about three to five generations. Rana writes, three to five generations. That's a century in the lives of the communities and the people in question. Is it any wonder then that the average American worker, just as those in many rich countries, has begun to question globalization? Now, globalization ain't questioned when the UN, the United States decides to invade Haiti. It isn't questioned when they just sent about three weeks ago another thousand. Uh, troops from Texas National Guard to replace the ones from the Maryland, Maryland National Guard. They got stationed in Djibouti, in Kenya, in Somalia. There's a permanent U.S. presence over there. That's globalization too. But when it comes to us getting together, hold on now, you're an American. Stay away from them Nigerians. Okay, none of y'all Haitian. This, uh, uh, that ain't how y'all get down. No. It's only how you want us to get down because you understand the key to it. Continuing, he says, or that nationalism and populism are on the rise. That's how it happened in Italy with this new fascist uh, prime minister they have, this, this lady, 45 years old. 
She says, as Harvard professor Donnie Roderick, one of the few mainstream economists to challenge the received wisdom of his profession in recent years, argued in 2011, quote, democracy, national sovereignty, and global economic integration are mutually incompatible. We can combine any two of the three, but never have all three simultaneously been and in full integrated. Today, it's quite clear that the pendulum of history is swinging away from global economic integration, right? Everybody trying to go off in a corner. I'm talking about the countries, not the people. Some of the changes that go along with this from market chaos to trade wars to real wars are extremely worrisome. But beyond the immediate troubling headlines, there are both challenges and opportunities. Here's my guide to our new era. This is a long article. I won't go into it, but I want to make this point as it relates to our class as we close for now. This course overflows all the country borders. This course is Africana. It's us together. The things we generate into it, we put into place in the local formations we're in, which engender an ability to see each other together. And then we can do political action, take action to tell, you know, United States government, your representatives, whatever, you know, y'all not going to invade Haiti. These people out here, their biggest concern is not the gangs, although that's a concern. Their concern is you interfering in their country. The people in Haiti can say, yeah, we see what's happening. The people in the Dominican Republic say, yeah, I work in that baseball factory, them draws factory. Yeah, I want to see baseball because uh, I got a you know a job over here. But at the same time, I understand they're playing my market off against your market, and you're just too busy watching the damn Astros play the Yankees to connect what's going on in very baseballs. They throwing this part of this mess. And the fact that the people throwing the baseballs are from my country. Do y'all understand all this works together? But the, the thing that fascinated about me about, about this article is that she's got the first section she writes is globalization isn't dead it's just different then she goes into the age of dual circulation think citizens not consumers own your own networks which is really a space to us we'll talk more about this monday night but there was a line in here i wanted to end with because she said that uh let me see um hold on give me a second here we go here we go Consider, for example, the common economic assumption that it doesn't matter where jobs are located as long as they are created, because people will simply move to them. Hmm. But as Harvard academic Gordon Hansen, one of the figures within this movement to reimagine free market capitalism, puts it, when workers without a college degree lose their jobs, few choose to move elsewhere, even when the local market conditions are poor. One reason for that is that they depend on the family and community ties of place to buffer them in difficult times. Hansen and his colleagues are building new, highly localized models of how economic growth happens in different areas. You know how this ties to the class we're about to undertake? Wherever you are, that's the local. What we're doing, that's the global. The global impacts the local by strengthening the connections we have because people who are so desperate that they can't stay where they are, they leave the country they love, Haiti, they end up in southern Mexico and they get pulled into a proxy war that the United States and its stooges are trying to wage to keep propping itself up. And then they recruit the people who are here to move against the people who are there. But in our course, as we examine who we are to each other and how we can connect with one another, we can get past a lot of that engendered representation of conflict. We can get past that long enough to have conversations about how we can support each other in our local manifestations as this economy, this global economy, which already knows all this, has to yield to the reality that you can't prop up a hierarchy anymore where people will simply move if they're desperate enough. They're not just going to sit down and die. So this course, in many ways, is getting ahead of what's coming and so that we can propose and enact actions 
creatively together and in our individual places that will enable us to live better and more fuller lives. And perhaps even at some point, I don't know, at some point contribute to saving the planet. But that's what we're involved in now on Monday nights with our course that will get through the syllabus on Monday night. I cannot wait. Uh, Like I got my notebook. I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, um, many of us, and I've heard this a lot, you know, we went to school, maybe we have degrees. We, you know, we did well. Some people have PhDs here. Yeah, Um, no question. I've never experienced this. And so I can't, again, thank you enough. And I'm going to always thank you because Mm -hmm. the um, freedom that comes from being able to be in community, you know, in a classroom full of people, thousands of people. And we're all on the same page trying to get to the same place, which is called freedom in ourselves and our community. And you have provided us with all of the tools and weapons. So thank Mm -hmm. you. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be a person who has been blessed to be in community, not only with you, because this is the conduit without which any none of this is possible. You have given us the platform and the quantum leap and had the vision to see it as it emerged before it even emerged. That is that is a true gift. That is a gift that goes beyond description, quite frankly. And, and we're all eternally grateful to you. And I'm grateful to all the ancestors and all the elders who have poured into me, to you, to all of us that we now get to be in real dialogue with because they wanted the same thing we want. And we all want the same thing for our children and the next generation. And it isn't about the color of our skin. It isn't about where we were born. But we know that Africa has something to say to the world. People uh-huh. said that. And so, yeah, I, I do want to mention one other thing. My man, Jim uh, Lawson, James Lawson there. That's him as a younger man. That's him as an elder. He's in his 90s now. They just, this is just a little book of some of his uh, writings, Nonviolent and Social Movements, The Teachings of Reverend James Lawson, one of the architects of the so-called civil rights movement in this country. They just named uh, a new high school in Nashville. Used to be Hillwood. I remember playing baseball with cats from Hillwood High School in the summertime on the on the traveling teams. Uh, it's, there's no longer a Hillwood High School. Um, in the fall of 2023, the James Lawson High School will open in Nashville. It's a small thing, but, you know, at some point when I go home, I'm going to have to go by there and get me one of them sweatshirts or something with Lawson on it. Because it's a beautiful thing when they name something for an elder while he's still here. I mean, you know, he's in his 90s, hopefully lives however much longer, a lot longer, but doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. James Lawson is a cat who, an elder, a baba who we should know a whole lot more. In fact, this this rotten social structure should be on its knees every night, thanking the world and thanking James Lawson for coming into the world. So that's one of the minute. Amen. Hold that book up again. Yeah, this is just a, it's a small little uh, thing. It was published by UCLA a few years ago. Nonviolence and Social Movements, the teachings of the Reverend James M. Lawson, Jr. Um, and this is probably the picture we know him best at because, again, he trained John Lewis and Diane Nash and C.T. Vivian and all them. That's him, you know, Martin Luther King during the period. And here he is as an elder. Yes. Yeah, anyway, yes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank yes. you. Um, uh, before we go, th- and thank you. A couple of weeks ago, you introduced us to to Ed Boucher, just in passing. Yes. And I I went down a rabbit hole, and oh, then yes. and then brought Chris Chris Jones, uh, Doctor Chris Jones, Rocket. Oh Science, God! And Dr. I didn't make that link. He's a fit right. And Doctor Chanda Prescott, uh, who's oh, an astrophysicist, you yes, know. Um, yes. And I had them together, and. We got to have an amazing conversation, but it couldn't have happened if you didn't just in passing just drop that. And I was like, oh. first person to get a PhD, and I'm like, who is this out physics oh. from yeah. Yale, black man? Of course. And then you have that conversation, bless oh. unknown millions. Yo, it those was... two together, and all they know in the social structure is this guy's running for. Uh, no, no, that you know what? Say less. I got this. 
Thank you. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is what I'm saying. The, the um, bounds, there are no bounds to the amount of, of, uh, I can't even describe what it is, but it is firing off so many things. Just, you know, so the platform is one thing. That's great. Yes. Oh, no question. But it's the banging up against one another and the seeds drop that somebody else picks up and plants. Like you don't even know how much this is going to reverberate. Um, and it's going to be beyond anything that we could even imagine. So yes. I'm just you. grateful for that too. Thank you. So, thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Hey, spread the word now if you want. I mean, just know either way, spread the word or not, like you said. We keeping our heads down, we doing our work. All right. I'm gonna end with this. Uh see y'all in them Nubian streets, y'all. Thank you, Dr. Carr.